Jung says no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach to hell. So part of our growth and maturity through evolution of body, emotion, mind, and spirit manifests itself in career as the willingness to do the work to overcome our shortcomings, our family programming, our religious programming, our social programming, our cultural programming, and whatever it is that gets in the way. And and our trip through hell is the realization that when we live the way other people's are living or the way they want us to live or are trying to force us to live without following our heart, then we're in hell. But once we get brave enough to say, look, I'd rather uh, endure the pain of trusting my heart and following my bliss than the pain of not listening to my heart and all the health problems and diseases that creates, then we've already got roots into hell and we have the foundation that inspires us to climb the ladder to progressively higher heights, higher experiences. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Evolve solo series of Living 4D with Paul Check. How can you build a meaningful career, one that is both fulfilling and provides you with the financial security to enjoy your life? Join Paul for this final solo episode of our Evolve series to hear how he evolved his own career and how you can do the same for yours. And be sure to join Paul on Instagram Live this week for a Q&A session on all of the tips and techniques he covered in the episode. Stick with Paul until the end for participation details and for news about how you could take full advantage of our Evolve 2019 Grand Finale on May 3rd. Well, hello and welcome to our fifth in this series, Evolve Yourself 2019. We have had quite a journey together. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. We started with Evolve Your Body, and then we dove into evolving yourself emotionally, then evolving yourself mentally, then evolving yourself spiritually. And today, our final podcast in the series is Evolve Your Career. So today, to culminate the series, I will give you suggestions for evolving yourself through your vocation or career. In this episode, I'm going to share the difference between a job, a vocation, a career, and a legacy. I will talk a bit about how I found my legacy We will look at uh, cultivating awareness of how we block our potential to create our dreams effectively and how to be a co-creator with the universe. And I will also share the importance of challenges to our personal, professional, and spiritual growth, which builds on the previous episodes because we've covered some of these things, but I'll take uh, a different approach or an integrative approach so that we can take all the Uh, things I've shared in the previous podcast in the series and bring them into a synthesis today with it, uh, with how it regards to evolving your career. And I will share the 10 components of a dream or legacy that we all need to be aware of in order to effectively harmonize with and attract 
the right people, places, and opportunities to us. And a bunch of this information comes right out of PPS Success Mastery Lessons, uh, which are at ppssuccess.com, but this comes right out of PPS Success Mastery Lesson 1, which is the most important. I organized the lessons in the order that I thought was most important based on the 12 most common things that disrupt people's ability to live and love fully and find and live their dreams. And we will finish with how to get started from where you are right now. To begin with, I'd love to share a beautiful quote by Lawrence G. Bolt, author of Zen and the Art of Making a Living, which is an excellent book, by the way. Lawrence Bolt says, Work offers the individual the opportunity to share acts of love and beauty, to see himself reflected in the image of his work. We must, if we count life valuable, consider what we are working for. That's a beautiful, genuine, honest, factual quote. Let's do it again. Work offers the individual the opportunity to share acts of love and beauty, to to see himself or herself reflected in the image of his or her work. We must, if we count life valuable, consider what we are working for. That is very, very true, and it's worth rewinding this recording if you need to, to listen to it until you can memorize that and make it part of your internal compass or direction-finding system. So there's often confusion amongst my students when I teach PPS workshops live or holistic lifestyle coaching programs as to what a legacy is and why we should have one. So to begin, let's clarify the difference between a job, a career, a vocation, and a legacy. Chances are from time to time that we will all have jobs or have a career, but until we listen to our soul and our body, because your body gives you symptoms when you're not listening to your highest truth, to your inner guidance system, we are likely to engage our vocation Um excuse me, we're, we're unlikely to engage our vocation or be clear on what our legacy is or is to be. So what I'm saying there is that if we don't listen to our inner voice, our soul, our deepest truth, our higher self, our heart, then we may work for money, but we will end up with physical symptoms, emotional symptoms, and mental symptoms. And we can fall into the trap of being so caught up in those things. And as I'll show you later, using those as excuses to not enter the hero's journey, that we end up not finding our vocation or our career or our calling or the grand uh, envelope or umbrella of all this, as I'll show you in a second, is the legacy. So let's look deeper into these concepts. Now, when it comes to differentiating job, career, vocation, and legacy, I'm quoting here from an article uh, called Job Versus Career Versus Vocation, and um, hopefully we'll have that for you in the show notes, but I'm pretty much giving you the gist of this little short article because it basically said what I wanted to share. A job might be part of your career, 
or might be part of your vocation, but the connotation of a job is getting paid for your time more so than for your skills. People work jobs to make money, so having a job means you will have money. Jobs can also be steps in your career or can fund your vocation. So that helps give you some definition. Vocation is a much misunderstood term. The word comes from the Latin vocare or voice, meaning to follow the voice of God or your soul or to do what we are called to do. Popular usage links vocation with technical education programs such as in vo-tech schools. The place your soul calls you to is the place where your sense of deep connection, harmony, and desire to share yourself and your talents and the world's deep hunger meet. What is needed in the world, or what is needed in the world that you are here to fulfill, that is the intersection, uh, the intersection point, uh, or your calling. So when we read the words, the place your soul calls you to is the place where your sense of deep connection, harmony, and desire to share yourself and your talents and the world's deep hunger meet, is really saying that each of us are part of the puzzle of life, if you will, the, the tapestry, the flow, the magnificence, the complexity of it all. Yet, in my experience, each of us is here to fill our, our special place. I often teach my students to imagine that everything in the universe was depicted on the wall as a giant jigsaw puzzle, and you were standing in front of it. If there was even one piece missing, your eyes would instantly be drawn to the hole in the puzzle. I share that as an expression of the fact that each of us is inherently part of the whole. Whatever whole you choose, the world, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, God, we cannot be separate from the whole unless we create an illusion within our psyche and pretend or are ignorant of the reality of the deeper truth. And I've tried to share these concepts with you throughout this program. The point I'm leading to is that whole is a drawing forth. It draws our eyes to it. There's an incompleteness there. I mean, if you went to a car lot to buy a new car and it was sitting on the showroom floor, but there was a headlight missing, <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't notice much else but the fact that this beautiful Audi or Ferrari or whatever it might be was missing a headlight. And you'd say, what the hell's going on here? So when we look at this concept of the grand puzzle of life itself, we as an individual represent the piece. But when we put our piece into the puzzle, there is an act of fulfillment. There is an act of sensing what it is that we're here to do. And when we remain open and conscious that we are part of the fabric and the process of life itself, then we can have a deeper sense of trust that if we don't know yet, 
we will figure it out. And there will be that sense of aha, that eureka, like this is what I'm here to do. <clears throat> and as we go through the program, I will talk more about ways to explore and fulfill these things. Now, your vocation could be work that is outside your wage-earning sphere of activity. For example, a business person might have a vocation as a youth sponsor, counselor, or sports coach, and a school teacher might have a vocation as a quilt maker, or even as a writer, craftsperson, or breeder of pedigree dogs, or any number of things. So the key point here is that your vocation is a calling of the heart. It's something that you feel is congruent with what you're giving back to the world to fill that magic uh, puzzle piece with meaning, with contribution. Some people, because of their vocation, in my experience, usually because they have a fear that they can't make enough money doing their calling or their vocation and make enough money to fund the lifestyle they want to live, ultimately maintain a job. Um, you know, so which brings up a, a concept I'll share with you. I was in a, a business seminar by a, a famous multimillionaire named Brad Sugar in Australia many years ago. And he, he defined what a business is, which I think is important for all of you uh, want you know who have business in your life now, a, your own business or want to have your own business um, is something to be aware of. And it's something that I've had to work very hard to create. And thanks to uh, the support of Gavin Jennings and his wife, Gabby. Um, we've uh, come a long ways to taking me out of the job position into a vocation. And Brad Sugar says that a business is a viable financial entity that makes money without you. Anything else is a job. Again, a business is a viable financial entity that makes money without you. Anything else is a job. So typically when we're in a business, but we are experiencing the labors of being in a job, it's usually due to the fact that we need more management skills, marketing skills, or need to hire consultants or um, people that are independent contractors that can support us in developing our business so that, it is a, so that it's a viable financial entity that makes money without us. Sometimes we're in a service business that requires us to, to do work, such as being a massage therapist, for example, or a mechanic. But as we mature, we have the opportunity to find ways to create passive income streaming. I, too, was a therapist, a massage therapist, a sports massage therapist, a uh, strength and conditioning coach, a consultant, all of which required my hands-on time, but wanting to share my knowledge with more people and create more financial freedom, I began develop, developing uh, video education and correspondence courses, which allows me to make money without having to be there. So 
there's many ways we can do it, but we we have to face up to the task of cultivating enough knowledge and wisdom and life experience to feel good about what we have to share and 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 sell uh, and we you know love is a boomerang as I'll share we there's always got to be a return so there's nothing wrong with charging for your education or offerings because we are giving our love out to the world and in order for love to be sustainable there has to be an energetic return or an emotional return or something that creates reciprocity or we just burn out so we've talked about a job and a career and a vocation um a career is is uh basically you know a job with a fancier title in many ways um if it's not your vocation so the same thing i said earlier about the school teacher uh for example uh or the business person, the business person could also have a vocation as a counselor or sports sports coach, and the school teacher might be a writer, craftsperson, or breeder of pedigree dogs and animals. A career person might be a lawyer who uh, coaches little league or counsels people or likes to uh, make model cars or ships or things like that. So with that in mind, we'll look at what a legacy is and why we should have one. Your legacy is what you create each moment, each day of your life. So as I go through this, you'll realize what more of what a legacy is. But once you understand the legacy concept, it's very, very important to realize that you're, you're either moving in that direction each day or you're sidetracking yourself. And, and we have, I have plenty to share with you about that. Uh, coming up. A legacy is what you leave behind as a testament to your having been here, as a testament to your life. You know, the, ask yourself, when I die, what would it, what is it that I'd like people to say about me, to remember me by? And basically, you could say what you're leaving behind is your legacy. If they say, uh, you know, so-and-so was a great teacher or a great humanitarian or philanthropist or a great warrior or rebel that stood up for people like Gandhi. That's a legacy. Gandhi's legacy was nonviolence, and it was a powerful one. Your legacy symbolizes your grand purpose or your modus operandi, which, you know, modus operandi means your 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 means of doing something. Why bother? Your modus operandi is what gives meaning to what you're doing. It's what gets you out of bed with zest in the morning and keeps you from being programmed by mass media and dogmatic religious beliefs. Um, And that in in itself is a very long topic, and I do quite a bit of teaching on that in my uh, HLC two and three programs and check four quadrant coaching mastery because there's a lot of challenges with religious programming, but as I'll show you uh, later in this programming, it's it's actually there for a reason. Your legacy is what gives you the internal strength and courage to turn challenges into opportunities, and that is you know. 
that's really one of the key features that distinguishes the child from the adult, the insecure from the secure, the fear-dominant thinker from the optimist-dominant thinker, and, and, you know, categories like that. A legacy is also one's chosen vocation, provided that their vocation and mission are in alignment. In other words, if you're a school teacher, but your vocation is quilt making, and your mission is to share love through quilt making, then that is an alignment of mission and vocation. Um, uh, Ruth, who worked in our education department for many, many years and recently retired, uh, she loves making quilts and she makes these absolutely gorgeous quilts. And she gave one to Penny and I think for our 50th anniversary, if I remember right, and woven into the quilt, the, uh, she had taken pictures that she'd collected of Penny and I traveling all over the world teaching and doing the work of the Czech Institute. And when she gave us the quilt and we opened it up, it was like a storyboard of our whole life together. And it was just absolutely amazing. And it was very, very clear to me that her love infused that gift. And when you, and this is one of the beauties of having a vocation and knowing what your legacy is, because your heart is open and anything that you do carries the vibration of your love and your passion. And what a lot of people don't realize is that that is how, um, that's the difference between, for example, being an artist or a musician and being worried all the time that you're not going to make it because there's so much competition and just trusting in the universe and your soul. And if your soul guides you into being an artist or a musician or any other thing, but your heart is fully in it, it greatly increases the likelihood of your generating enough income to feel good and to feel safe. That's a critical thing to, you know, latch onto in your mind and in your heart is that where there is love, there is always possibility. Now, when I'm speaking of mission, it's important to realize that a synonym for the word mission is enthusiasm. And the word enthusiasm is derived from the Greek word, uh, the Greek word entheos, which means God in us. And uh, if you want to read more about that, you can read the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Um, by Richard N. Bowles, 10-Speed Press, 2005. Great book. So... When we're in our mission or our legacy, we are in a state of entheos. We are acting out and expressing the God force of love within us. Your legacy is a gift to yourself because it gives you a sense of meaning and purpose. It's a gift to your family because... It's going to bring you lots of challenges, but those challenges become labors of love, and the love will carry you through the challenges and, and will teach you to turn challenges into an opportunity. And it becomes a gift to our family, because a lot of us come from families that haven't found their legacy or their love, who are doing jobs, and often the siblings are doing exactly what mom and dad 
wanted them to do, not what they want to do. Therefore, when we live our legacy and fulfill our dreams, we are evolving our family. The apple gets up and walks away from the tree, and by the same token, we're doing the same thing not only for humanity, but because we are a point of consciousness in the mind of the universe, or God if you prefer, then we are actually evolving the entire cosmos every time we evolve ourselves. And how's that for an amazing reality? Because we're part of a connected whole, anything we do contributes what we do to the whole. So if we do the work and use the methods I'm sharing in this series to identify what our dream is, which is could be your vocation or your legacy, then we are evolving the entire cosmic sphere. So it's important to recognize and be proud of your unique identity. And when I say recognize, it means when we realize that we are a puzzle piece in the grand scheme of the entire universe, even the multiverse, then if you take a moment and ask yourself this question, will there ever be anyone again with your fingerprints, with your exact physical, emotional, and mental makeup or your spiritual abilities? Well, the answer is no. One thing I know from a lifetime of studying this thing we call God is that God is a novelty generator. If you don't like the word God, just whenever I say it, replace it with universe. But there is no two things alike. There are no two stones alike. There are no two plants alike. You know, if you really get down to it, there's not even two things that are machined alike. Even the atomic structures can vary. So what you see is that There may be things that look alike. Humans look similar. We know it's easy to differentiate a human from a chimpanzee. But when it comes down to what we carry into the world and our unique perspective, only we have that perspective. Only we have the gifts that we carry. So when we recognize that uniqueness and we connect to it and we celebrate it, and we keep our uniqueness in a place of love where where it's nurtured by the juices of our own love and creativity and inquisitiveness, then we become open to the flow of letting the universe guide us to what it is that we need to learn so we can ultimately identify our vocation and create our legacy. And, and that's much better than walking around with your head and eyes down going, why am I here? Why does everybody else have more money than me? And, you know, poor me syndrome. So be amazed at the novelty that you are, at the, that you are. Avoid the need to be what someone else wants you to be unless that very existence facilitates the alignment of your body, mind, and soul. And the first people you're going to run into where that comment applies is your parents and your family. That I can assure you, and I'll talk a little more about that as we go. And and because this can be quite a journey, a lot of my students often feel insecure because they're in my class and 
workshops and they say, you know, why haven't I found my legacy yet? And so it takes time. And what you'll find is at a certain point in your own development, which often takes at least 35 years of life, if if not longer, it can, it can take 50 or more years, depending on who you are and how tuned you are to your heart versus your head and versus social opinion, um, you'll all of a sudden realize that there's some kind of a magical golden thread connecting all the events, all the people, all the places, and all the jobs together. And you'll realize that you couldn't be the person you are sharing the legacy you're sharing or the vocation you're sharing with the world without each of the key bits of knowledge and life experiences and even the challenges you went through to get to that place. And all of a sudden you have this aha moment. You realize, wow, the universe is friendly and there is something guiding me that's beyond my immediate perception that the ego allows us to work through if we stay trapped in ego or self-identity, i.e. mine versus yours, me versus you. I I want, I have, gimme, gimme. That, that's sort of the, you know, the negative elements of the ego, but they're inherently part of the ego. The ego carries, as we've discussed, a shadow. So if we overly align ourselves with the darkness in ourselves, then we miss out on the opportunity to expand ourselves from I to we. And that's where mentorship happens. That's where angels come into our life to guide us, but we have to be open to it. One of my favorite quotes from Albert Einstein is, your dreams are a snapshot of your future. And Einstein said many, many genius things outside of just his scientific commentary. He was really a beautiful man. I think I've studied three biographies on his life, and he's quite an inspiring person. So remember, your dreams are a snapshot of your future. Now, if one of the metaphors I use is that our mind is like a garden, so it's important to keep the soils of our mind rich. The material you give your legacy a body with is very much like the gardener who chooses his seeds, plants, and uh, cultivates the soil so they grow well. And the same way a gardener has to be conscious of weeds and if there's a lot of weeds asking the question what is it about the nature of the soil that seems to be more conducive to growing weeds than peas and carrots and cucumbers and squash um, we have to be aware that negative thinking and fear-based thinking and fears of mom and dad and family and all that can easily uh, be like weeds growing in the garden of our dreams. And so if we're not conscious to learn to use the kind of tools I teach in Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 2, Level 3, Check 4 Quadrant Coaching, and in PPS Success Mastery Lesson 2, which is all about how to manage your mind, and it's, it's a quite a comprehensive and deep lesson that shows you how brainwashing is used to program your mind and how you can use the same strategies to clean your mind, well, then what happens is we just find ourselves choked out by the weeds, and then we usually have to dr uh, drug ourselves with alcohol or um, too much marijuana or sugar or caffeine or anything that we can use as a distraction. But 
the you know we have a big issue in the world right now of people using pain medications uh, which are highly addictive but it's a symptom that we're not listening to the messages coming through our body and our body starts talking to us when we're not listening to our higher or higher self or inner voice or soul in his program titled the luck factor which is very good i've studied it years ago by brian tracy he shares the law of attraction which says you are a living magnet and you inevitably attract into your life the people circumstances ideas and resources in harmony with your dominant thoughts that's very true in my experience again the law of attraction you're a living magnet and you inevitably attract into your life the people circumstances ideas and resources in harmony with your dominant thoughts then we can apply the concept of like attracts like and opposites attract so typically men are attracted to women Um, sad people are attracted to happy people because they lift them up and a lot of happy people are attracted to sad people because they're psychologists or psychiatrists or caregivers of one type or another. So in some way, we're, we're all here reciprocating and supporting each other. Um, in a family, uh, like a marriage or a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, as I think I mentioned before, when one of us is down, generally the other one's displaying the opposite polarity, and they're more up and can lift us up, and we tend to do that for each other. So like attracts like, and opposites attract means we are normally attracted to people at about our same level of overall physical, mentally, or emotional development, uh, the kinds of people we call friends. That doesn't mean that uh, you know, someone who's weak and out of shape isn't going to be attracted to a, a Laird Hamilton or a superstar athlete or a Ben Greenfield ass kicker type, go get it, hunt them down. Um, you know, we all need our, our heroes to inspire us. But it means that the people we surround ourselves with will resonate at about our own frequency. And as I said in a previous podcast in this series, that if somebody we're in a relationship with evolves one chakra higher in their evolution than us, or we evolve one chakra higher than our partner, it makes it very, very hard to stay in a relationship with that person because you feel like you're constantly carrying them along. In other words, they fall into a childlike position and you fall into a parenting position. And unfortunately, we don't do very well coaching friends and family members, particularly family members, because their egos are always measuring themselves against us. So uh, (laughs) it's quite dangerous to try to coach people in your family circle. But when I say like attracts like and opposites attract, we also attract people to us that have skill sets that are relatively opposite to us. I'm a very creative person. My mind is very holistic. I'm very good at taking complex information from many fields of study and holding it in my inner field of vision and perception and working with it and finding out what elements of each of these concepts connects to the other things. How does the soil relate to your psychology? 
how does the soil relate to the uh, concept of nutrition, such as can you really get good nutrition from pills and vitamins, uh, supplements, if you will, that are manufactured largely from the same lousy plants and crops that lead people to the ill health that they're trying to combat. Well, it's not a very good idea. So there you see the connection from one thing to the other, which is what holism is all about. But on the other hand, my wife's not as good at me as that, Penny, but she's very good at accounting. She's very good at business strategy. She can read spreadsheets all day long, which would drive me right into the nut house. Uh, she's good at managing details. She's very good at arranging travel and accommodation and uh, managing piles of credit cards and passcodes and things that just don't seem to stick to me. And she's my wife. So her being good at that frees me to do what I'm good at. And me doing what I'm good at allows her to sell something that she values and and feels is worth devoting her life to to share with the world. And there you have like attracts like and opposites attract. Now, one of the big things that I teach in PPS Success Mastery Lesson 2 about self-management is a concept called an impossibility wall. An uh, an impossibility wall is a limiting belief accepted by an individual, usually after being programmed with a negative engram, which is a series of processes or commands associated with any given goal or task. In other words, it's like an automatic program in you. Or multiple engrams and their associated locks. A lock uh, means that uh, it's a limitation uh, or it's a connection to another such engram. Now, to give you an example that you're probably familiar with, uh, a long time ago, I can't remember the name of the runner that was the first one to break the four-minute mile. I think it was Jim Fix, if I remember right. But it was believed at that time, physiologists said that a human being could not possibly run faster than a four-minute mile. And Interestingly enough, within one year after Jim Fix broke the four-minute mile, or the person that did it, if I got the name wrong, 13 people did. I think within a couple of years, it was broken 37 times. And this goes right back to Rupert Sheldrake's concept of morphogenic fields and morphic resonance, and how I talked about the fact that if we grow and learn, and I quoted uh, one of Sheldrake's studies or a study on magpies, If we grow and learn, we pass that on through our genes and into the morphic field of resonance, which makes it accessible to all human beings. So when we run into these impossibility walls, it's usually our own fear-based thinking or our ego or our uh, lack of knowledge about what is possible or our lack of willingness to push the boundaries, right? Uh, you know, those that go on the hero's journey and those that really push themselves like a Laird Hamilton or a Danny Way or many of the, you know, great athletes and great achievers, the great mountaineers, rock climbers, uh, explorers, they all broke down their own impossibility walls. And there's, you know, all you got to do is go to like Gaia TV or Netflix or Amazon and, there's mountains of documentaries on people that 
really broke down impossibility walls, making it easier for the rest of us to achieve what is possible. Now, there are impossibility walls all around us. You know, there's a center of gravity in society, and that's where the average level of consciousness is. In our culture today, in the West, it's somewhere between the second chakra and the third chakra. So the second chakra in this regard is issues of sex and sexuality and being sexy and looking better uh, from a marketing perspective. And then issues of the third third chakra is all about me. It's my will, what I want, not what you want. And all you got to do is look at how marketing campaigns are designed. They're largely oriented toward what gives you more wealth, fame, status, or feeds the ego, or what enhances your beauty or sexuality. So if we rise above that level, the concept of I is active in the first three chakras, the we concept is begins in the fourth, and the all is from the fourth all the way through the seventh, then we realize that we, the more we grow past the center of gravity, the more people start doubting us or telling us what can't be done, or you're crazy for trying to run a hundred miles, or you're, you're a fool for getting in a boxing ring or kickboxing ring and getting your head beat on and all these other things. But these are inherent elements of the psychological aspects of society and individuals and fear-based thinking because the mind, as I said in in, uh, part three, evolving the mind is oriented towards threats, not possibilities. As I said, nobody dies from a birthday cake, but people do die out hunting. So the negative bias tends to bring us down, but only those of us that listen to our hearts and our souls gain the levity to realize what's possible. Uh, One of my favorite quotes from Carl Jung that is very relevant here is that Jung says, no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach to hell. So part of our growth and maturity through evolution of body, emotion, mind, and spirit manifests itself in career as the willingness to do the work to overcome our shortcomings, our family programming, our religious programming, our social programming, our cultural programming, and whatever it is that gets in the way. And and our trip through hell is the realization that when we live the way other people's are living or the way they want us to live or are trying to force us to live without following our heart, then we're in hell. But once we get brave enough to say, look, I'd rather uh, endure the pain of trusting my heart and following my bliss than the pain of not listening to my heart and all the health problems and diseases that creates, then we've already got roots into hell and we have the foundation that inspires us to climb the ladder to progressively higher heights, higher experiences. And each time we climb the metaphorical Jacob's Ladder, we get a better view and we see more of what's possible and more of uh, this, the rest of ourselves. And we can then become a brighter and brighter light to support other people in their own journey and their own evolution. And for me, that's been an exciting process. It's hearing back from people like some of you that have sent me letters of thanks and 
getting letters from people that have applied my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. And I've had many letters from mothers saying that all their children and even both parents were on medical drugs. They had bad illnesses. They were told by doctors that have to stay on drugs for the rest of their life. And all they did was follow what was in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. And everyone got healthy and no one is using medical drugs anymore. So when I get letters like that, it it really makes it worth the tour through hell that I had to walk to get to the place where I had enough knowledge and life experience to write a book like that. And as is the case with my entire education system, because it was the same trip through hell that gave me the awareness of what it was the world was calling to me for. And largely what it was, was a holistic integration and a simplification of an overly academic environment in health and exercise that needed a good farmer's dose of practicality. And so there you can see uh, how I made it there. And and earlier I, I meant to tell you more about how I found my legacy, but what I wanted to tell you was that as a young man, first I was raised on a farm and I had to do a lot of different jobs from running heavy equipment like tractors to working with hay balers and plows and rakes for hay and and furrowing uh, tools for uh, corrugating fields to uh, digging ditches for irrigation to running chainsaws and falling trees. And we had a firewood business. So I used to spend hours uh, splitting firewood and hauling it around in wheelbarrows and to managing animals, to building fences, to dealing with plumbing and irrigation issues, to working with hydraulic systems on machines. We had a, a carding factory, a woolen factory in one of our barns, um, you know, fixing automotive things, engines. I worked as a mechanic. I went to an automotive and industrial trade school when I was, I think, 18, 17 or 18. And and got trained to do automotive and industrial repair. So I learned a lot about electronics, internal combustion engines. I worked, uh, I, I learned to weld as part of my work with machinery and ex- being exposed to welders on different jobs and got very good at welding. I was great at metalwork in school. I learned a lot about metalwork, which served me well. I built my own race cars, roll cages, uh, had a number of different cars that I drag raced from time to time. Um, I worked in automotive electronics at one point. I was a bricklayer's assistant. I worked on an exploration and water well drilling crew. I was a faller in a logging camp. And before that, I was a chokerman, which is kind of low man on the totem pole grunt work. But I made it all the way to the very top in a logging camp in one year, which generally takes about 20 years to do if you... <laughs> aren't inspired to listen to your heart and soul and go for it. And the way I did that, by the way, is, this is kind of funny, my dad used to leave our chainsaws laying around, and we had a lot of, uh, you know, old growth forest, forest that was large, we had, you know, lots of trees, three and a half, four feet, five feet across the butt, and we had about half our 140 acres was, uh, forested 
And because I found the, the thrill of falling trees was so exciting, and of course back then I didn't realize what I was doing ecologically, and I would watch my dad fall them, and boy, when a tree 170 feet tall hits the ground, you can hear it for a couple of miles away. And so I just had this inherent you know, desire to figure out how to fall trees, not realizing how extremely dangerous that was. So oftentimes when my dad was away at work, I'd just grab one of the chainsaws and I'd go way back in the woods where I suspected he wouldn't be walking around because the property was too big to cover every square foot of it with any regularity. And I would practice falling trees. And I started with little ones and I got to the point where I could fall a tree about three feet across the butt. And when I was in logging camp, I just felt frustrated with the grunt work of being a chokerman and the and the pay wasn't that great. I mean, it was pretty good at the time. I think I was, you know, I don't know how old I was, probably 18 or so, 17. And I was probably making about, you know, $20 an hour, which back then would be like $40 an hour an hour. But compared to the amount of money that I wanted to have a nice stereo and build drag cars and cool things like that, I was just frustrated because it wasn't enough money to really live the life I wanted to live. So uh, when my son was, you know, probably only a year old and and uh, I really wanted more money, I decided to go put an ad in, in a bunch of the chainsaw rental shops. And I just posted an ad that said, follower looking for work. Please contact me if you need help. And lo and behold, one day I got a call from a man named George Reed, who was a falling contractor, who basically did work for logging camps as a contractor and would hire fallers on a job uh, per job basis. And some of these jobs could go on for months at a time. And he called me. And so when I went and met him, the first thing he said is, he said, you look like a baby. He said, you can't be older than 16 or 17 years old. I said, well, I'm 18 and I'm a father and I've got experience falling trees and I really need a job. And he kind of was, <laughs> he looked at me like, you got to be kidding me. There's no way somebody your age can have the knowledge and experience necessary to fall trees. And before I go on, I'll tell you, falling trees is probably the most dangerous job in all of Canada. About 55 or more year fallers uh, die every year due to falling accidents from limbs falling on their heads and trees splitting and exploding and getting hit by other fallers dropping trees on them and it's very dangerous work in fact one year i worked in revelstoke british columbia in the winter time in 22 feet of snow falling trees on snowshoes which is the most dangerous of all the falling jobs because you can't run from the tree when it's falling on snowshoes when you're in snow even on snowshoes up to your you know, your belly button. But, um, so he, he looked at me with a funny little look in his eyes and he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put you to the test. He said, if you can pass this test, I'll give you a job. And so he got me in his truck and we drove way out into the woods on some logging roads and he found a, a great big tree, probably, I don't know, 150 feet tall, three and a half foot at the butt of Douglas fir. And he reached into the back of his truck and he took a you know, plastic five-gallon gas jug and he threw it about 40 or 50 feet as far as he could toss it from the tree. And he said, if you can hit that gas can with the tree, I'll give you a job. And so 
I wasn't afraid because I had practiced and I'd, you know, been around my father for years doing this. So I went out and went through the procedure that I had learned by watching my dad and practiced. And lo and behold, I smashed that gas jug bang on the money. And then he walked up to me and he said, you got lucky, kid. I could tell you were scared to death. But I'll tell you what. He said, you got such big balls. I'll give you a job and I will train you as a professional faller, but you're going to have to work for half pay until I deem you a faller. And I said, I'll take it. And it was a blessing because this guy was a damn good faller and we did what's called right of way falling, which is the toughest kind of falling. And we go into the areas where they're building new logging camps, which is almost all old growth trees, no small stuff, all huge trees. And the engineers have come there first and they've left markers like the color ribbons you see when they're building a new construction site. And we had to fall all the trees out that ultimately became the roads so that they could then bring the heavy equipment in to build the roads and then build the logging camps. And it's very tricky because you have to fall trees between trees very accurately or they get hung up. And then if you have to go fall a tree when there's another one leaning on it, it can explode and, and kill you due to the pressure or both of them can come crashing down on you and many people die that way. So I worked with him for, I don't know, probably half a year. And uh, then I was making about, I think, 175 bucks a day, which is still quite good. It was more than I was making as a chokerman. And then I got offers for other jobs that paid me 250 a day. And um, so by the time I was about 19 or so, I was making 250 bucks a day, which did fund my race car habit and my stereo habit and amazed a lot of people because I was pretty much the youngest faller anybody would ever seen in logging camps. And I consistently got the reward of the day for the most pieces. So when you fall a tree and you bucket into predetermined sections based on what the logging company wants to sell for plywood or beams for big buildings, you have to buck those trees into sections and you count how many uh, chunks that are sections that you create each day by falling the tree and bucking it. And I was very consistently the champion for of the day of all the followers in any log camp I worked at because I had a very strong work ethic and was very physically fit and could just physically outwork these guys. So doors just kept opening. So part of what I'm saying is you got to be brave. Sometimes you got to, you know, put your balls in the line and go on the hero's journey and take risks and hopefully, you know, intelligent risks, not stupid risks. For me, it was an intelligent risk because I'd already practiced, as I said. So if I'd never run a chainsaw before, then that would have been a a death sentence. But um, when you really go for it and you meet the challenges and you stop crying about how much money you don't have or why this person's holding your back or my life would only be better if mommy and daddy treated me to better and and you get out in the world and you trust the spirit inside of you to give you the strength and the courage and and move in the direction of what you want you will find that you can overcome obstacles um You know, one of the obstacles I overcame is people kept telling me I'd never make any money in my life if I didn't have a college degree. And I just absolutely 
had zero desire and just did not see a lot of people with degrees that impressed me at all. In fact, I was quite the opposite. I would find myself working on big construction crews or drilling companies and a lot of the guys that had fancy degrees in engineering or whatever it might be couldn't solve problems and inevitably would have to come get me and I would solve the problems. And they always look at me in amazement, like, how the hell did you figure that out? And I would look at them like, how the hell didn't you? And a lot of that was from being raised on a farm by a, va- a father who didn't take any excuses and said, you better figure it out or the ultimate uh, con- <laughs> cost of it, of not thinking will be painful. And so I learned how to problem solve. And we all have these abilities. Nothing that I did is unusual, but the point I was leading to is I never did get a high school diploma through school. When I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, I was forced to. They locked us in a room. Anybody that didn't have a high school diploma was locked in a room and told, you cannot leave this room until you have a high school diploma. And then they handed out all the study books for the North Carolina high school diploma, and it took me three days that's day and night. Uh, you know, I could fall asleep if I wanted to, but you couldn't, you really, they, they let you eat and you had to go back to work. And that was it. You pretty much slept there, stayed there, peed there, pooped there and studied until you passed because they, their policy was, if you're not smart enough to have a high school diploma, you're not safe to be trained as a paratrooper. So I graduated with like, I don't know, 90, 92% or something on my high school diploma, but Ultimately, I ended up lecturing all over the world in medical schools, physical therapy schools, chiropractic schools, osteopathic schools, and major conferences um, with no um, college degree and only a general education diploma that I was forced to get in the military. But what I did do was pay attention. What I did do was follow my heart. What I did do was look for the best people anytime I was on a job and paid attention to what they were doing and asked them if they could show me things. And I found that was far better than reading books. If you just got a hold of someone that really knew what they were doing, they would get you right to the key things you needed to know. So I've had my challenges and I've had some bumps along the way. And, you know, I've been through a bankruptcy. I started my, uh, seminar business when I was a young man and had many people telling me I should be teaching what I needed to, what, what I, what I was teaching them in clinics, um, started teaching professionally, traveling and lecturing uh, in the United States in 1988. And ultimately what happened was, is I had poor business management and my, my information was so advanced for Americans in particular that they couldn't wrap their heads around it. And the only people that would show up to my workshops oftentimes were the top guys from professional sports teams and elite level therapists. But the people that really needed it wouldn't show up because when I investigated, I said to, for example, to one, someone that was in my workshop, I would say, you know, where, where's the rest of people that you know that, that were working with you in the clinic or that know about this workshop? And the most common thing I heard was, well, they didn't think a guy without a high school, or without a college degree could teach them anything. I said, well, why'd you come? I said, and they would say, well, when I looked at your brochure and the concepts you were teaching, the concepts themselves were so advanced, a person couldn't even think that way unless they had quite a lot of knowledge. So I took a risk on, on it. And that ultimately led me to lots of consulting with professional sports teams, which launched my career 
But I actually had to go to Australia and New Zealand to get the Czech Institute to take hold and to make enough money to survive. And the Australians and New Zealand saw what I was teaching as obvious. And I had medical doctors and therapists of all types taking my courses. And it blew their minds. And that led to me getting invited to speak at the New Zealand Musculoskeletal Medicine Conference, where many of the best doctors in orthopedic and sports rehabilitation from the world come to share their findings and debate with each other and many, many other such things. So what I'm sharing is you got to be careful not to let impossibility walls stop you. And I'm also sharing that you might feel like you're in hell, but it is where you grow the roots. And I grew roots. I grew deep roots. And those roots gave me confidence in myself. And it taught me to look for intelligent people as mentors. And it taught me not to give up. And being a father, when literally two weeks after I turned 18, I became a father, I had a family to feed. And both her parents and my parents were broke. None of us had anybody to fall back on for a rescue. So I had to go out and make it happen because I had too much pride to collect welfare. I just couldn't do that. I knew inside of me that I was not someone who needed a handout. I just needed to make shit happen. So we need to be conscious that if we feel like we're trapped in hell right now, then the awareness needs to be, what are the lessons I'm learning that I want to master so I don't have to repeat them again? What am I telling myself that isn't really true? It's just a story I'm telling myself to avoid the responsibility of taking care of myself and making something out of myself. That's hell. When we figure that out, then we start moving up. And the beauty is, is once you get to ground level and you start taking responsibility for your choices and choosing to follow your heart then you have empathy and compassion for all the people that are caught in hell because you've already had your own tour and you also have the confidence, the wisdom, and the ability to inspire people to climb out of hell. Misery loves company. Don't forget that. People that aren't successful, that aren't happy, that are still bound to the hind tit, who need mommy and daddy to rescue them, who blame daddy and mommy for why they're feeling so bad, uh, those people tend to want to pull people down to their level. And so that's the center of gravity I was talking about. We've got to be brave enough to climb above it or we just get stuck down there for long periods of time and it's just not healthy. Now I'd like to take you into a concept I developed Oh, a long time ago, 2005 or so, when I was developing the PPS Success Mastery Program, which, as I said, was a series of 12 lessons based on what I had seen repeatedly in my career that were the 12 most common roadblocks to success for people. And having thousands of students around the world and hearing over and over again why they couldn't get their homework done or get case histories done or make money or this or that. I kept hearing the same series of words over and over again. So I, I, uh, I named them and I call them ant infections. So 
when we are open to or are clear on what it is that is our specific dream goal or objective at any given time, and we need to manage ourselves effectively so we can not only you know, take care of meeting our needs, but be a contributor to the world, be an adult, then we have to be conscious of when we have these ant infections and the, you know, think of a leaf eater ant or a leaf cutter ant. They can kill a whole tree. Ants can strip <laughs> your cupboards uh, at my office here at the Heaven House in the summertime, the ants, we have to make sure there's no garbage in the house or no compost in the house because we can come in and there can be literally countless ants covering the floor. I mean, like a sea of them. So these are things, you know, my point is that ants can do a lot of damage. They're certainly an important part of nature. So these ant infections are, I can't do, I should ant, I would ant. I did ant, so I couldn't do my homework, or I shouldn't do that because mommy said, or the church says, or whatever. Well, to the degree that following those ants limits your ability to be your authentic self and to express your creativity, which usually means to be different than everybody else, then you abort your hero's journey and you end up being someone who uh, reaches the middle of their life and goes, what the hell did I do with my life? And that can be painful. That is a midlife crisis. And today people are going into midlife crisis as early as 18 years of age. And I've seen it and it is not pretty. And I've been through a midlife crisis, not because of the ant infections, but because I took on so much you know, in metaphor, trying to save the world. And so that's a different kind of a midlife crisis, but it's a real one. So while holding the vision of your legacy in your heart, all work serves to enliven and attract material reality to your chosen legacy or dream archetype. In the beginning, it's a fact that we often have to wear multiple hats. I've worn multiple hats for a long time. I'm a teacher. I'm an author. I'm a researcher. I'm a clinician. I'm a hermit. <laughs> I'm a mystic. Um, I practice uh, the work of a medicine man and a shaman. I'm a father. I'm a businessman. I'm an inventor. Uh, you know, and throughout my life, it's it's really been an act of discipline to find time to exercise and eat well and do my Tai Chi and meditation practices because it's easy to say, oh, I can't do my Tai Chi today because I'm too tired or, you know, any number of excuses. But, you know, those excuses don't get you anywhere. In fact, when I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, when you walked into my first sergeant's office, on his desk was a great big white sign with a target painted on it, like the kind you see at an archery range. And it had a picture of an arrow in the bullseye, and it had in big black letters underneath the target, the maximum effective range of an excuse is zero meters. And he made it very clear, if you're not bleeding to death or someone in your family isn't dying, there is no excuse for showing up later, not getting your work done. 
and that was heavily reinforced, painfully reinforced. So I learned as a young man in a elite military unit that you commit to getting the job done, and if it doesn't kill you, you make it happen. And sometimes that's what life requires of us, and that's what it means to be an adult. And that's why in Native societies, when you uh, reached puberty, you went through an initiation process where you were usually taken through some kind of an event that took you to the very edge of your life. And oftentimes, uh, medicine men and shaman would put people through a vision quest in Native American and other cultures to help them figure out what it was that they were here to do in the world. And that vision quest uh, techniques varied, but uh, one of them that I studied was they would take a person to usually like the edge of a cliff and make a circle out of stones. And they would give them a very significant dose of a shamanic medicine, such as peyote or mushrooms or various uh, plant medicines that would take them into significantly altered states. And they were not allowed to leave that circle for four days. They had to pee in there, they had to poop in there, and all they had was water, no food. They had to make it through that process. And when you came out of that circle, it was your task to know what it was that you came to this world to do and how you were going to contribute to your tribe. Or you were still a child, which means you're now a dependent on the tribe. And in some cultures, they would actually kill you if you did not make the transition into an adult because they could not for, for, uh, afford to carry you. So the point here is, if you're young or if you're still figuring yourself out, follow your heart, make the money you got to make to support yourself while you're looking to do the things that nourish you, be it making quilts, models, whatever keeps you alive, i.e. the school teacher that makes quilts or breeds animals or the businessman who lives to coach Little League or be a school counselor or something like that. And as long as you understand that you're here as part of the cosmic puzzle and you're here to contribute to something bigger than yourself, then things have meaning. And you can be like I was when I was a young man. I might have, I've had a lot of jobs I did not like. I remember uh, at one point prior to joining the military, uh, the only job I could get between on when the when we're in the off season of fishing was to repair crab traps, and I I made about two dollars an hour by the time the the uh, the uh, paycheck came and all their taxes were taken out and all that, and I worked long hard days in blistering hot sun, doing grunt work repairing wooden crab traps. And that inspired me to keep looking very intensely with every spare minute I got, which led to me getting a job as a mechanic in a marina where I met my boss, who was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. And when I told him I was thinking about joining the military, he counseled me on how to get the most out of my military career, which then led me to doing all the entrance exams and finding out that I had very high aptitude skills in mechanical, electrical, and uh, asking which schools 
gave the most education because that way the government invests the most money in you. And it turned out for me that repairing weapon systems on Cobra helicopters required almost one year of electronics school, which cost the government about $300,000 per soldier. And then at that time, uh, that was 1980, let's see, I joined the Army in 83, so by the time I was in electronic school, it was 84, roughly, uh, sometime around there. And people in my military occupational specialty of repairing weapons systems, they're called aircraft fire systems uh, control was the job title, were getting hired by Bell Helicopter right out of the military, even after just three years at 89000 a year. So imagine what 89000 was like in 1983 or 84. So, you know, what happened is you can see that I'm showing you, I've had to do a lot of, a lot of jobs just to make a living. And some of them I didn't like, but I kept my eyes open always and asked questions and found the next best thing. So you never give up on your dream and you always want to keep your heart and mind open, but you are often going to have to do things that are not so fun. Uh, my mother worked two waitressing jobs back to back to support three children. By the time she was 18, she had three of us. My father took off, left her, didn't give her any money. So to pay for a babysitter to watch us, she had to work two eight-hour waitressing jobs back to back every day. So I didn't get to see my mother very much, but my mother did what she had to do to keep us alive and take care of us. And there's lots of parents that have to do that. And uh, a lot of children who are now young adults don't realize the kind of sacrifice that their parents had to make to support them. And the reality of it is that if you really stay tuned to better opportunities and follow your heart, you will have the strength to do almost anything. And I, I could sit here for a long time and tell you all the jobs that I did to keep food on the plate. So common real reasons for not realizing your legacy are fear of failure. Many people are more afraid to fail uh, than they are to succeed. So the challenge there is getting rid of the idea of failure. Remember, it took Thomas Edison th Edison 10,000 tries to make a light bulb. And when he was interviewed and asked, how in the world did you continue after that many failures? And he said, well, I didn't see them as failures. I knew that each time an experiment didn't work out, it was one step closer to figuring it out. Uh, you know, so failure is something that you decide. But if you get rid of the concept of a loser or a failure and convert it to the concept of a learner, then instead of having this idea of being a failure in your head, just ask yourself, what did I have the opportunity to learn through this experience? And what will I be willing to do so I don't go through this again? Next is fear of rejection. That's a big one for a lot of people, but that's based on needing other people's approval to feel good about yourself. So that's part of growing up is having enough trust in yourself. And this is why a spiritual life is so important because if you don't have connection to a greater whole, then you're pretty much stuck inside your own belief system and inside your own fears. And 
if you're connected to a greater whole, well, for some, they ask God for support. Some ask family for support. Some um, need government support. Some reach to mentors. So, um, fear of rejection is really not healthy because it stops you from moving forward and it's always based on someone else's approval. That's the problem with the perfectionist. The perfectionist is really most often a perfectionist because of their fear of rejection, not because of their true interest in perfection. And the perfectionist is always walking on a tightrope because when they think they're doing things perfectly, they can never please everybody. And they don't realize that something that's perfect can't change. You cannot improve on perfection. So the inherent beauty of the universe is that there is programmed imperfection in it, or there would be no impetus for us to evolve, grow, learn, and become. Some have a fear of reality. They're living inside of a bubble. They're still, as I say, on the hind tit, and mommy and daddy are covering their losses and taking care of them, uh, even when they should be upstanding adults contributing to society. Uh, Some people want to watch TV, eat chips, and play video games all day because they were more comfortable in an an illusory reality, a virtual reality, than the one they're living in. But that always leads to more and more problems because the longer you do that, the more habituated you get to it and the less likely you are to be able to handle this thing called reality and it will strike. It strikes as diseases and illnesses and waking up in the mirror and looking in the mirror realizing you're 40 pounds overweight or all of a sudden going for an evaluation from the doctor for an annual checkup and realizing you've got uh, stage three or stage four cancer. And so avoiding reality uh, is never really good medicine. Fear of losing identity or what we call losing face is, is really tied into this fear of rejection or uh, masquerading as someone more intelligent and more capable than we really are. And that's never a good place to be. Um, you know, unfortunately, you get people like Tony Robbins, who I love for many reasons, but some of the things that he teaches I don't really uh, buy into, and one of them is fake it till you make it. Well, there's a certain level of application. I had to fake it till I make it as a faller, but I did practice and I did know what I was doing and I was confident in myself enough to, to take the challenge, which ultimately got me the job. But if you're masquerading as an expert because you read a couple of articles or uh, you're pretending to be somebody you're not, well, that's going to produce a lot of insecurities in you and that will come with ant infections. Fear of pain and sacrifice is another uh, very common one, and I think I've discussed that enough. I don't need to elaborate, but ultimately what happens is you see all these fears basically are inhibitory factors. They block you from your own forward movement, and pretty soon you're like one of those insects in a biology lab stuck to a board with a pin And that sort of is a symbol for the rest of your life if you buy into all this fear. Next is fear of commitment. Most people have a fear of commitment because they're afraid they won't get what they want. And usually getting what they want means they want to have the freedom of a child, yet they want the income and the freedom of an adult. And that 
generally doesn't work very well. In fact, rarely ever does it work very well unless you have not only parents with enough money to have a child for the rest of their life and the willingness to have an adult baby, but if you're willing to deal with the pain of realizing you're not contributing to the world, uh, then fear of commitment might serve you. But I've had to do therapy for many people who suffered greatly, even significant diseases that I track back to fear of commitment. Fear of commitment also is a real hindrance in relationships. And remember our discussion of I, we all. We can't be an equal partner in a we relationship, nor effectively contribute to the all if we're in fear of commitment. And we can't accomplish our dreams, goals, or objectives because those are all commitments. So look at the fact that about 98% of people that make New Year's resolutions uh, lose their commitment to it within about two weeks, just like people who win the lottery lose their money. So Next is fear of making the wrong choice, but then again, we have to get past this fear, and instead of considering ourselves failures, we simply consider ourselves learners. Osho said there's no such thing as a sin except doing something twice when you know for sure it didn't work the first time. So that's worth considering. Fear of not being in control. Well, we can only control what's inside of us. We can control our thoughts. We can control with practice, our feelings and how much of a reaction we let people get out of us. Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survival, um, I think his book was Man's Search for Meaning, talks about uh, what kept him alive was knowing there was one thing they couldn't take away, which was his attitude and his way of uh, relating to himself in that situation. And his, his teachings and writings are pretty phenomenal. Fear of uh, that, that that things will never work, you know, that's often a problem in marriage marriages. People fear that it'll never work, but they often haven't gotten skilled counseling, so they don't know what's possible. Another big one is fear of success, because with success comes responsibility and expectations from other people. But as ex, as uh, Maxwell Martz. Uh, Maxwell Maltz shares in his very excellent book, Psycho-Cybernetics, success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. That's worth meditating on. Success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. And all you've got to do is look at all the famous athletes, movie stars, musicians, politicians, billionaires who suffer from all sorts of relationship challenges, depression, suicide, um, you know, do crazy stuff and end up in the news because they've made a complete fool out of themselves because they are successful. But all you got to do, for example, is look at the story of Michael Jackson and all the pressure his parents put on the kids to be successful musicians and look at the dysfunctions that emerged from that type of an environment, which is a tip for you if you're a parent. It is not wise to pressure a child to become something you want them to be, but it is wise to support that child in any way you can so that the child can access their own innate genius. And if we support that genius, then we get the joy of seeing our child live a life of meaning and fulfillment.
Now, freedom is another issue. Osho says the most dangerous thing you'll ever experience is freedom. <laughs> if you study his life, you'll see uh, that he uh, kind of exemplified that. Um, you know, when we're free, we're automatically different than most people. Only about 1% to 2% of the population actually experiences a significant degree of freedom. But the thing that limits us from freedom more than anything else is our program beliefs. The What we think God wants from us, or what we think the church wants, or mom wants, or dad wants, or, you know, what someone else expects of us or constantly being the, our own source of, of negative self-talk. Those are all limitations of freedom. Only when we are wise enough and capable enough of questioning our own thoughts honestly and asking, is this negative thought that's limiting my freedom helping me create my dream and live more fully? Is this a dream affirmative or a dream ne- negative thought? And if we realize it's dream negative, then it's our job to do the turnaround and say, okay, well, the thought, I don't love myself or I'm not good enough, can be flipped over to something realistic. I can work on loving myself and I can develop the skills to be successful and accomplish my dreams. And by orienting ourselves toward the thoughts and emotions and values that are dream affirmative, well, we start overriding our faulty programming. Uh, Joe Dispenza has a great book on this called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, which, which is quite good. So remember, as I've shared previously, fear is false evidence appearing real in most instances. By all means, if you're out hiking and you come across a rattlesnake, it's probably wise to have a healthy dose of fear in you. If you're out hiking or camping in the mountains, you come across a hungry bear, uh, I wouldn't try to fight it to protect your uh, <laughs> your jerky. <laughs> uh, very dangerous. So there there is times for fear, but there's also times to realize what what our when our fear is something we're projecting out onto the screen of reality and not realizing it's not what's actually in front of us it's what we're projecting like a movie projector and usually that's the um, unfinished business of our parents that we're working on that's our opportunity to evolve our family and do what our siblings may not have been able to do which is get past all the uh, thou shalt that mom and dad programmed into us. And all of this, as some of you are aware, is all about the hero's journey. So I want to share some quotes from Carl Jung that I think are very, very appropriate. And, and you know, Jung is one of the people I've studied for about 20 years. And he developed the entire field of depth psychology. He was the first real practitioner of art therapy. Um, he, you know, highly, highly evolved human being. Jung says, we always imagine that our worst enemy is out there in front of us, yet we carry the enemy within ourselves, a deadly longing for the abyss, a longing to drown in our own source. This regressive tendency has been consistently um, opposed from the most primitive times by the great psychotherapeutic systems uh, that we referred to now as religions and mythologies. 
they seek to create an autonomous consciousness by weaning us away from the life of childhood. So what's happening here is that religions fill us full of ideas that are largely based on limitations and beliefs about what God wants. But be warned, if God is God, God doesn't want anything because if God is God, God already has everything, including you. This is just the anthropomorph- what's called the anthropomorphization, anthropomorphizing of God, turning God into the old man in the sky with a beard that's watching over you, which is classically the territory of fundamentalist religious ideologies. And that means God is just a projected parent in the sky and that you have to be good little children or you're going to get punished and burned in hell. But to really live fully, we have to, uh, you know, we have the opportunity to grow beyond these limitations. And these are the limitations that religion sets up so that we can develop our own mind. And all the mystical branches of the religions are basically the heretics of the religion that realized that these things were not true of God, largely through their own inner experiences and mystical experiences and things that, or or coming into contact with true spiritual teachers that help them um, go deep enough into themselves to realize that these were stories uh, to keep children uh, busy, and basically they're there to create a mental-emotional gymnasium where we grow the strength to realize that the benefit of these limiting beliefs is that they give us the resistance we need to overcome to develop emotional Uh, intelligence and mental intelligence and become a true individual and develop our own relationship with God instead of being told what God is or what God wants, Uh, which is a a dangerous trap. As soon as you start pretending you know what God wants, then you're living in illusion and projecting it onto other people. The only way you could know what God wants is to become God, and paradoxically, you wouldn't know anything at all, because God is the complete merger of that which is subjective, i.e. your thoughts and feelings with that which is objective, which is everything you see around you, and without a subject-object relationship, there cannot be an I-thou relationship or an I-it. Therefore, there's nothing to think about, quite paradoxically. This is why, as I said earlier in our series, when anyone asked Buddha uh, to describe God, he just went silent, because there, you, to describe something, you have to have a subject-object relationship. To describe a rock, the rock has to be out in front of you so you can look at it. But if you become God, there's nothing outside of you, and everything's inside of you, and there's no separation. You can't be separate from it to describe it mythologies are really belief systems about how we will interface first with ourselves, second with our tribe, third with the mystery, and how we navigate the challenges of life. So our mythologies throughout antiquity helped us understand our place in nature and our place in the tribe and our place in the universe. And whether the mythologies were right or not, they created guiding structures, which is what religions do, But all mythologies uh, really have a shelf life, and then a counter-myth emerges. So the idea of the second coming of Christ is a mythology. Well, people have been waiting around a long time for Jesus to show up and rescue them like children. 
But the reality of it is, I think I mentioned this earlier, the word Christ is not a name, it's a title. It means one who is at who is in unity with all that is, in unity with the universe. So once a person reaches Christ consciousness, there is no second coming because you're already there. Your consciousness has merged with all that is. So these are important. There are many ways of regression. Um, fleeing from responsibility, using drugs, getting stoned, uh, giving yourself over to ideologies that are proposed to answer questions for us, like religions telling you what God is or what God wants. And Jung says these are forms of uh, regressive response, the flight from responsibility, the flight from thinking for yourself, learning to think constructively. Most religious and educational systems teach you what to think not how to think. And that goes all the way back. If you study Ken Wilber's work, uh, he gives you the history of it and shows that our educational systems were developed by plantation owners specifically to teach the plantation, uh, one, to keep the plantation, uh, the, the slaves' children very busy so they could work them for longer hours, but to train them not to be creative, but to follow orders. And our education system largely is funded by large corporations that are programming you to see the world how they want you to, and to act in ways and think in ways that are congruent with following orders, not having any freedom. And look at all the people who end up with diseases because they don't like going to work. The most common time for a heart attack is Monday morning because it's easier to die than go to work. So these are very real things. And I learned right away from my father that I did not like being controlled and told what to do all the time. So early in my childhood, I made a promise to myself I would do anything to be free even if it meant I had to work really hard to feed myself and get shelter for myself. So I left home at 16 and took care of myself. And I would rather dig ditches and build crab traps than uh, have my mom and dad telling me what to do. And I would rather have no church than someone telling me I'm going to burn in hell and at the same time telling me that God loves me, which anyone with a whole handful, you know, even two or three neurons holding hands can see that there's a, a, a very serious conflict of information there. Jung also said, there is a question we must all ask. What wants to flow through us and from us into the world? What wants to flow through us and from us into the world? This is the hero's task, showing up and overcoming the power of fear and lethargy. Lethargy comes from the root word lethe, which is a river in hell. It's the name of a river in hell. And in the myth, when you drink from this river, you forget to show up. You forget all about the journey you're on. You forget about your responsibilities. So think of all the people avoiding the responsibility of the choices they're making with diet and lifestyle factors and ending up on drugs that numb them out. They are drinking from Lethe, the river that produces forgetfulness or lethargy. And all you got to do is look at the kinds of diseases and track them back to their sources. And you'll see Carl Jung was very wise and knew exactly what was going on. Another potent quote from Joseph Campbell. 
Our demons are our own limitations, which shut us off from the realization of the ubiquity of spirit. Each of these demons is conquered in a vision quest. Joseph Campbell says, The cave you fear to enter has the treasure you need the most. So part of what I'm trying to convey here is that there is challenges to live your dream. There are challenges to meet your goals and objectives. In our culture where everybody's too busy eating potato chips and uh, microwave food and box this and box that and watching video games and getting instant gratification, the center of gravity is low. It's easy to fall into the trap. We've gotten to the point now where it's normal to be a fat person. I'll never forget one summer I was lecturing in London, England, and it was in the summertime, and I was astounded walking through parks at how many obese people, girls, were running around in two-piece bathing suits, and their bellies were so big, they were literally hanging past their crotch. You couldn't even see their crotch. You couldn't see their bottoms on their bathing suit because their bellies were so obese. And, you know, it might be my own issue of self-confidence, but I could not be comfortable in myself exemplifying that degree of a lack of self-awareness. And we've gotten to the point now where there's so much obesity, it's becoming abnormal to be slim, fit, and healthy. In fact, all the way back in about 1992 or three, I was asked to be the uh, massage therapist for the U.S. Olympic uh, men's marathon trials and women, and I had uh, six of my own females that I coached make it to the uh, Olympic trials, and I went and worked with them as their therapist, and I can't remember where we were at. We are in the middle of the United States somewhere. Um, uh, where was I? But anyhow, it was uh, in a state that's well known for its dairy and its bread, and uh, I think it was... Um, might have been Michigan, but uh, uh, anyhow, the level of obesity all the way back then was shocking to me. And I remember going to a restaurant and ordering, and the woman said to me, "Don't you?" What she offered me bread. I said, "No, I don't. I don't want any bread." She goes, "Honey, you're getting so skinny. We got to fatten you up a little bit." I said, "No, I'm in very good physical condition. I don't need to be fattened up at all. That's why I don't want to eat the bread." And she just found that very shocking. To her, it was like mind blowing that I didn't want to eat bread. And that was a long time ago. So, the temptations are always there. But if you practice what I teach in HLC training, holistic lifestyle coaching training, and learn how to use your soul connection and muscle testing and diet logging uh, and the things I, for example, teach in primal pattern eating, you learn how to make decisions for yourself because to face the challenges inherent in life, we have to have a level of health and fitness or it just becomes very hard because as we get sick, we lose our ability to deal with challenge and to deal with change. It's just a fact. In a course I'm studying on mythology, which is based on his book, James Hollis, uh, his book, Tracking the Gods, The Place of Myth in Modern Life, which is a mind-blowingly good book, but I'll warn you, it's very deep if you're not studied in mythology. He says, he was quoting someone else's poem, but I, I couldn't get the 
name uh, but of the author, but the the poem line I'm going to read you is is quite uh, appropriate here. It says, "If the seething sea has shaken my raft to pieces, then I will swim." Which means, if your life is falling apart, don't just drown. Don't give up. Start swimming. Grab a piece of the raft that'll hold you afloat and use it as a kickboard. If you can't see the shore, well, you can either hang out and wait till the sharks eat you, or you can just start kicking and tap deep into the spirit that lives within you that's capable of conquering the impossibility walls that are so common in our heads, and you will um, you'll probably find that the concept of a miracle is possible, as many have. Now, many people ask, why set goals? And a lot of people don't. In fact, only about uh, 3% of the world population, based on surveys, sets goals with any consistently consistency. I'm one of them that does. And uh, an author named Seneca, which I believe is an ancient Roman author, says, Our plans miscarry because they have no aim. When a man does not know what harbor he is making for, no wind is the right wind. Sri Aurobindo looked into the qualities of true spiritual masters, people that could do things that defied the laws of physics, such as manifesting things out of thin air like Sai Baba, or healing people that were sure to die. And one of the four qualifiers was that they create beyond the laws of physics. And we forget that our minds operate beyond the laws of physics. In your mind, you can do anything. You can be rich or you can be poor. You can be beautiful or ugly. You can jump a mountain or you can fly to the moon. Those are not things you can easily do based on the laws of physics. But, remember, like attracts like and opposites attract, and we harmonize with our dominant thoughts. So, you know, when I had a dream of being a faller, I focused on that, and I did everything I could possibly do to make that happen. So, our thoughts are an attractive force, like an image of something we want to create, and then in the real world of the physical world, where the laws of physics apply we begin building the body for that dream. So we work the jobs we've got to work to get the money, to get the training, or to hire the mentor, or to do the things that we've got to do to begin embodying our dream. So, uh, you know, it's important to remember that thought is proof that, like God, we can all create something out of nothing, right? You can be sitting in meditation and create something out of nothing. And Einstein used to get his greatest ideas while playing with uh, the bubbles in his bathtub and basically meditating in the bathtub. And he would be asking the deeper part of himself, the universe, for answers to questions that nobody could answer uh, in other words, no one in the physical realm that he knew could give him the answers, so he used principles of thinking effectively and intuiting, and we all know how successful he was. Now, if you have not found your legacy, then 
there's some things you can do. If you're not sure who you want to be, behave as though you are someone you want to be and you will blossom into your legacy. So if you want to be a big wave surfer, study Laird Hamilton and emulate all the behaviors that he displays, such as sound diet, adherence to solid exercise and rest principles, commitment, commitment to his family and his responsibilities, and you will become more and more like Laird Hamilton. And when you couple that with a legitimate practice of surfing and finding mentors to teach you, then your uh, your dream embodies itself. So whatever it is that you think you want to do, and even if you're not sure, think of what you'd like to do now more than what you're doing and say, who's good at that? And what can I learn by studying them? I've studied the biographies of around 150 people in my career for that very reason. I wanted to see what made these people tick. I wanted to learn about the kinds of challenges they had to get through. And I wanted to learn how do they think? How do they solve problems? And studying all those people really helped me learn how to think constructively and critically and not just be a sucker for silliness. A good example of being a sucker for silliness is not looking honestly at both sides of the issues of vaccination, not looking honestly at both sides of the issues of medical drug use or surgical procedures, not looking honestly at the dangers of things like 5G phone systems, not looking honestly at the program beliefs that religions put into your head and making you believe you'll burn in hell if you don't take someone as your savior, be it Jesus or otherwise. Uh, you know, these are the things that give us the resistance to become a critical thinker, give us the inspiration to ask, if God is God, then what God? What would God really be like? And all you got to do is pretend you were God. Would you want to control everyone and scare the shit out of them and make them think they were going to burn in hell for being human, especially when you, God, created them? That doesn't make any sense at all. If God is God, then burning anything or anyone in hell would be the equivalent of burning God's self in hell. Uh, it just doesn't make sense, right? And I, I was smart enough to see the holes in this at eight years of age, but I watched tremendous suffering from people that people go through because they haven't learned to think critically. And to be successful and, and navigate a hero's journey, you've got to learn to think critically or you'll always be somebody else's pawn. You're, you're, you know you're doing the right thing when you have a sense of body, mind, and soul alignment. Like, you know, when I'm teaching Tai Chi or teaching people how to eat better or how to exercise better or how to live better or how to develop their own spiritual practice or what I'm doing right now, my mind, body, and soul are energetically aligned. Therefore, we don't have any power loss. We don't have any short circuits. And when we're tapped in so that our body, mind, and soul are aligned, we have the support of the entire universe. And if we practice meditation and mindfulness and Tai Chi, Chi Gong, and things that calm us, be it art or music or shamanic practices, we learn that the universe is conspiring to help us all the time. And, and you know, there's an old saying, angels love to come around when people are making love because it, it excites them. So if you're making love by following your heart, the angels come around because you're exciting to them, but they get bored of watching people with ant infections as a metaphor. 
And it's important to realize that we are always being helped. Throughout our lives, there are always people assisting us in our upward evolution, and there's always those needing our guidance and assistance in their ascent. I've had many overweight, unhealthy people in my HLC 1 and 2 program, and they frequently say, you know, I'm afraid to coach people. I haven't started my holistic lifestyle coaching business yet because I'm too fat or I'm not healthy enough. And I look at them and say, how many people in the world are heavier than you right now? Well, usually the answer is millions. How many people are more unhealthy than you right now? Usually millions. Have you learned a lot since you began this journey? Yes. Then you have a lot to teach the people that are less healthy or are carrying more weight or are more confused and more lost than you are. And you don't learn things by reading books. You learn things by practicing. Jung said intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And this goes right back to all the religious silliness. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've met that practically have memorized the Bible, but you would never know it by watching the way they manage themselves in relationships and how they deal with the world. So that's a fear of the direct experience of God. Uh, you know, plant medicines are getting very popular today, but one of the things that scares the hell out of people is they realize once you go into a shamanic ceremony with plant medicines, you can't control the outcome. That's why it's called a shamanic journey. The difference between a shamanic journey and getting stoned is that if you do a real shamanic journey with a properly trained guide or shaman, they will dose you to the point specifically that you cannot control things with your ego so you come face to face with the dragons and the goblins hiding inside of you because the devil you know is always better than the devil you don't know. And until you recognize your own shadow and your own judgments of yourself and other people, you cannot begin to heal them. Healing can't happen until you bring the unconscious into the conscious and work with it, as I shared in our section on evolving your mind. So, living your legacy energizes you, attracting the right people to you and allowing you to help others. And that is what fuels us. That love fuels us. It's also important to remember that the love principle, I studied Walter Russell's work quite extensively. I took his one-year home study course, which is excellent. You can get it from www.dowsers.com. And... Uh, I studied that course intensely. I carried it with me all over the world in my suitcase and on vacation, and I managed to do the entire year's training in three months. And I've studied many of his other books. But Walter Russell talks about the love principles, which says that we must give love as well as receive love, or we stop the flow of love in ourselves, in our family, in our social circle, in the world, in the universe. So, we must remember that part of our commitment is to do the work that others are afraid to do and overcome the limiting fears and beliefs we have so that we can be a light for other people. So, don't hold on to life. Allow it to move through your awareness as experience, which produces wisdom. And that wisdom you can return to the world as a gift of your own consciousness and your own life force. If you think of the Taoist concept of, of what created the universe, which 
some call God, but the Taoists refer to it as the dragon. They say that the dragon's favorite hobby is to breathe universes into existence. And every time he breathes a new universe into existence, is made of one baby dragon called Yin and another one called Yang. And he looks at the two little babies that are the seeds of this new universe, and he says, you two can rest from managing your universe when you can get along. <laughs> so those two little baby dragons are inside of us, and they're called mind. And when we can work through spiritual practices and the kinds of things I've been sharing throughout the series that I teach and my instructors teach in Holistic Lifestyle Coach Training, we learn to manage those dragons. And then we realize that by managing those dragons, we can harness their creative ability and we can become whatever we choose to be. And we don't let other people's beliefs or opinions slow us down. In fact, when I was young and people told me many times I would never amount to nothing, mostly school teachers, all it did was inspire me to prove them wrong. And so I'm grateful for their negativity, but other kids that aren't quite so strong in spirit get leveled by that and they believe it. It's important to remember that you can only take with you what you become in this lifetime. You can't take anything else. You can't take cars. You can't take money. You can't take toys. You can't take your body. What leaves is your soul. And that is a very incredible collection of energy and information that adds to the universe and shows God what's possible within itself. We are all living. We're all living God. We're all breathing God. We're all acting God out. God can't know what God is without the illusion of separation, without which love cannot exist. So when we realize that it's our job to take the scales off the dragon of thou shalt one at a time and be brave enough to go on the hero's journey and do what we've got to do to become an adult and contribute and fill ourselves with love, then we are the light in the dark. We are the gift to the world. And when it comes to prioritizing your goals, I break goal prior to prior, uh, prioritization into three phases, I, we, and all. So the first thing we always have to be concerned about is how much money do we need to be safe and secure, and we have to orient ourselves toward that or we become a codependent or a child or are always looking for a handout, and we get stuck in poor me consciousness and ant infections. Then we have to manage the flow of our energy. And remember, I talked about the five essentials of a program design, time, energy, finances, willingness, and resource availability. So there's where we need to be conscious of how we're using our energy and what our chief aim is. Then we have to be aware of what diet and lifestyle practices give us the health and vitality we need to deal with the challenges and gain the knowledge to become the person we've chosen to be. Then we also need to be conscious of making time for people in relationships. When I was a young man, I was so hell-bent for leather to make money and avoid living the painful life that I lived in my parents' house and to make something out of myself that I fell into the trap of constantly working and constantly trying to better myself, but had a, 
a, a son, Paul Jr., and I was so busy working, I didn't spend enough time with him to fulfill my responsibilities as a father. I thought in my head that I was doing much better than my parents did. But in reality, I didn't give him the emotional connection that he needed. So here I am, 57, and he's almost 40, and we're still working on healing the pain in our relationships. And our relationship, because I was too busy trying to make it in the world and and live the unmet life of my parents, they didn't have very much financial freedom. They didn't have a very healthy relationship at all. They fought like cats and dogs, and it was brutal. So I, as a child, knew in my head, in my child mind, money creates freedom. I'm not going to stop working until I have enough money. And I also knew I had to make something out of myself because I didn't like people telling me what to do. <laughs> so then I became an idiot and joined the military. What a mistake that was. But actually, it was good. I got my career started there. But I did not enjoy being told what to do. So my solution to that was to be the very best I could be at everything and get promoted and get recognized as a leader, and that created freedom. And so I actually had quite a good military career because I worked hard enough to earn the respect to get out of a lot of the silliness that other people had to do. So we've got to orient our we goals around what's important to maintain key relationships, especially with people on our dream team and hopefully in our family, our our like our own wife and kids or our, our extended family, be it brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. Then we need goals at the we level for clear communications and developing our communication skills. And we don't have good communications training at all. Uh, I would highly recommend you go to nvc.org and study Marshall Rosenberg's teachings they're quite profound. Um, they're, it's hard to learn that as an adult because it's such a radical transition, but we certainly can. I, I use as much of it as I can. Uh, the book that I recommend for that training, and any of you can use, is Nonviolent Communication, The Basics as I Know and Use Them by Waylon Myers, PhD, and it's awesome. If you only master what's in this little book of basically 94 pages and it's quarter page size it'll fit right in your pocket your whole life will change then we get to the level of all and that's where we need to be conscious that everything that we're doing we're exemplifying to the world for better or worse and that we have to be aware we can choose to be aware of what our legacy is what do i want to leave behind how do i want to be remembered my goal is to leave the world a better place than when I found it, a little bit more beautiful than I found it. And that's what drives me to do the work I do, is, is that commitment to the world, which gave me the, a chance to live. And then we also have to look at what's realistic for our dream at any given time, and that helps to study the biographies and, of great achievers and mentors and see where the, things went well for them and where they went wrong so we can be aware of what pitfalls there are, what booby traps there are that most of us get trapped in. And one of the biggest things that we can do, as I said, I went into a midlife crisis because I just uh, realized I was burning myself out trying to help other people and had lost myself. So 
the higher up the ladder we go, I, we all, the more people we're connected to and the more energy we're putting out. And oftentimes we're more evolved than other people because we're actually on the hero's journey and we're conscious enough to think for ourselves. So we can easily get to the point where we realize that we need rest. And if we don't prioritize that rest, well, we burn out. And we part of that is first you get fatigued, then you get sick, then you get a disease, and then you die. So, I goals, financial security, energy flow, four doctor, self-management principles. We goals, relationships, communication, uh, all goals, what does it take to live your legacy and what are you willing to do, what is realistic and how much rest do I need and can I, can I be disciplined enough to give it to myself. Now, let's look at the 10 components of a legacy. I did a lot of research in this area. Uh, I counsel a lot of students and people, athletes, athletes, so their careers have ended due to injury or getting too old to perform at the level that they need to perform as football players, basketball players, hockey players, etc. And so I do a lot of what would be called career counseling with people as part of my therapy because it's often what causes a lot of illness and health challenges when people don't know how to handle a transition. And I identified the 10 key components to living your dream or having a legacy. And so I will go through those. Now, these things all come out of PPS Success Mastery Lesson 1, but you know that I can't even come close to sharing all the work and the exercises to help you get clear and help you heal that are in that lesson. And I highly recommend you consider if you are trying to figure out what your dream is and what your life path is that you do at minimum PPS lesson one, two, and three, which I call the foundation lessons. Lesson one is what is my dream um, and what's stopping me? Lesson two is how do I learn to manage my mind and use it effectively and, and live in a way that energizes my ability to meet the obstacles and conquer them and grow? And lesson three is how do I set goals effectively so that I can uh, effectively Um, manage the flow of my own energy and consciousness. So the 10 components of a dream or finding your vocation or your legacy, what is your overarching path to fulfillment, which by the way, I didn't realize myself until I was 20, let's see, 23 early, late 23, early 24, when I became the trainer of the Army boxing team and realized how much deep sense of fulfillment I got out of helping athletes perform better and heal from injuries and teaching them how to eat properly and um, just that, you know, the overwhelming gratitude that I got from the coaches and the athletes and the team doctor. And it just, it just touched me so deeply that I knew this was my life path and all the pieces lined up and that I have not turned around and looked back. I've been 35 years on this path and helping people is such a deep pursuit because we're very complex and to know what we need to know to help people, we have to know a lot about how the world works, how the soil works, how farming functions so we understand what nutrition really is. We have to learn about physiology. We have to learn about 
human movement. We have to learn about um, kinesiology. We have to learn about, um, which is the science of movement. We have to learn about uh, biology, biochemistry, uh, hormonal physiology in the, under the heading of biochemistry. We've got to learn about psychology. And psychology is the study of the soul, that which we experience within ourselves or psyche. And to understand that, you've got to understand archetypes and religious ideologies and um, metaphysics. And that also requires an understanding of science and basic scientific principles. And then we have to understand quantum physics because it now relates directly to the mind and uh, probabilities and the science of quantum physics helps us better understand metaphysics. So they kind of mirror each other at some point. So, you know, you can spend your entire life just studying endocrinology. So I studied the basics of everything so I could get a big picture view and recognize when my client needed an expert that had more knowledge than me. And that's what I teach all Czech professionals. We can never know everything, but we need to know the basics so we can recognize when people need specific help and we can refer them to those people. And we do the parts that we do best and we let other experts do the parts they do best and we work in a multidisciplinary approach to help people. So the 10 components that I will go through here fairly efficiently for you, which are, again, right out of PPS Success Mastery Lesson 1, are first and foremost trying to figure out what your legacy is, or at least what fulfills you at this time. And if you follow your heart, then you're being led to the basic skills and experiences that ultimately turn out to be essential to your legacy when you figure it out. I figured mine out, like I just said, at about 23 for some, it takes half their lifetime or even more. Some never figure it out because they get stuck in ant infections and all the things that we've covered in impossibility walls and parental and religious and social programming. Now, what we want to focus on if you don't know your legacy is what is your dream right now? And remember, if you don't know what your dream is, then we have to identify what our nightmare is because Resolving the nightmare frees up the most of our energy and allows us to get more into a creative flow, a creative space. And creativity is the foundation of real growth and novelty and and, uh, adding something beautiful to the world. Then we have to ask, how much responsibility do we want? What are we passionate about? What kind of people do we want to be with? What purpose does our work serve? What values are necessary for us to live to make our journey effectively? What is it that we feel good when we're doing? What makes us feel good? Where do we want to be? And what kind of working conditions do we want? And how much income do we need to generate to live the life we want to live? So let's take a brief look at each of those. So, First one is your dream. Think about what it is that you wished you could do if you had no limitations, be they time, money, skills, etc. Remember, don't tell yourself what you can't do, or I'll never do this, or I'll never do that, or that becomes your reality. But, you know, Einstein said your dreams are a snapshot of your future. So we want to dream. We've got to give ourselves permission to dream. Walt Disney was a great dreamer. Einstein was a great dreamer. Uh, you know, many of the greatest minds that have ever lived were great dreamers. 
It's also important to remember that most successful people say that 80% of accomplishing anything is first having the idea. Once you have the idea, then you know what you need to do to make it happen. But if you don't know what you're trying to do, then no amount of energy does anything productive. So your first step is to dream and find out what your heart connects to and gives you that sense of, aha, I'm willing to do the work to make this happen because now we're in a labor of love, not a thou shalt or woulda, shoulda, coulda situation. What makes you feel good? When your body, mind, and soul are aligned, you feel good. The aboriginals say when a, mind's, when a man's mind and body stand in the same place, he is whole, but when his mind and body are not in the same place, he is crooked. In my PPS Success Mastery program, in this lesson, I show a picture of Taoist master Jesse Sao, who used to come teach Tai Chi for us in HLC 3 classes. And also I had Master Fong Ha, who was my master for Tai Chi, and he's also a Qigong master. And being around these guys is mind-blowing. Um, I've got a picture of Jesse Sao doing a sword demonstration in the parking lot in my slideshow, and he's like four feet up in the air doing a, his sword kata. And, you know, watching this is just mind-blowing. And, uh, you know, when, when I studied with Master Fong Ha in around 2000, oh, I don't know, four or five, uh, before I wrote How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, so maybe 2002 even, he was in his 70s then. Uh, but he came out a few years later and uh, taught us in HLC3, and he did a, a Tai Chi demonstration that was mind-blowing. I mean, the students were just jaw-dropped to watch this man who's in his late mid to late 70s move like a cat and float like a butterfly was just phenomenal. And that's what it looks like when your mind, body, and soul are aligned, the, the juice of love and the universe flows through you and challenges are not things that stop you. They're things that inspire you to think creatively and ask for help from people that are wiser than us in those areas. What gives you a sense of purpose? In my office here, I have sculptures, many of them, probably 12 or so uh, of amazing people like Chief Joseph, the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, um, Einstein, Mother Teresa, Father Gregory Boyle, um, Sister Chan Kung, um, Albert Schweitzer. Uh, so those are a few. But my mother, my mother's passion is sculpting people that specialized or focused, or devoted their life to peacekeeping, and she's very, very good at it. She's now in multiple museums and has been celebrated multiple times. She has got a great book that you can read, uh, or you can go to her website and see all the people she's sculpted, humanitariansculpture.com. And her name is Mira Sensor, M-E-E-R-A-C-E-N-S-O-R. And um, I can't remember the title of her book off the top of my head. It's been many years since I read it, but it's available at her website. It's a nice little book that gives a story behind each of the people she's sculpted. And that's the kind of reading we want to do, because when we see the challenges that someone like Chief Joseph or Gandhi or Martin Luther King uh, or Abraham Lincoln or John F. Kennedy or Madame Curie, 
uh, etc. Uh, you know, there's a series on Amazon called the Genius Series that the first two ep- uh, series are one is on Einstein, the next one's on Picasso. Uh, those are phenomenal to watch. You see that those people really put up with a lot of stress and a lot of challenge and, you know, the Second World War and, you know, all the stuff that went on with that. And so we realize our lives are pretty damn good and we don't have a lot to complain about. But those people made it to the peak of their genius by staying focused on their dreams. And um, both Picasso and Einstein exemplify that. So what gives you a sense of purpose? And that's what fuels you. That's one of the 10 things that fuel you. Geography, where do you want to be in the world? What location is immediately applicable if you don't have the money to move to your dream spot? But then what is your dream? What's the location that can be built into your goal structure? So do you want to live somewhere where it's warm? Do you want to be in Hawaii? Do you like snow? Do you want to live in Colorado so you can mountain bike in the summer and ski in the winter? Do you want to live on an island? Do you want to live in a foreign country? Uh, You know, do you want to live in a big city like L.A. or New York? You know, some people like that. Personally, I don't like it at all. But we all have to figure out what our needs are. Uh, If your dream is to be a lawyer, then you might want to be where there's a lot of action. So you can get lots of work. But, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, the world is our oyster. It's up to you to decide and, and then... Ask Great Spirit to guide you, and as the Quakers say, pray and move your feet. Do your part. What are you passionate about? What fascinates you? What is your hobby? What is your dream vocation? Um, You need to have energy and drive and creativity. Um, And if you do, you won't need your watch anymore. You don't need to constantly check the time and, and say, oh man, when's this day going to be over? I just want to go home and watch television and drink some beer, watch football. You know, look at the popularity of reality TV shows. <laughs> people are so busy watching other people live that they've forgotten how to do it, which is really sad. So pay attention to what you're passionate about, what makes your juices flow, gets you excited, makes you excited to wake up. I remember when I was a kid and I got my first bicycle, I just could not wait to get on my bicycle every day. And then when I got my first motocross bike, it was just like I lived and breathed. I did everything my father threw at me as fast and as effectively as I could just so I could get a few minutes on that motorcycle and disappear. So motocross was a big passion of mine. I was quite successful at it as a young man. Same with stock car racing. People. What kind of people do you want to be around? Do you want to be around intelligent people, talkative people, beautiful people, earth-conscious people, compassionate people, active people, ass-kickers, passionate people? You know, pay attention to the kinds of people that nourish you and make sure that you're clear about that because whatever you don't get clear on, then you're leaving to chance. And then you don't have free will. <laughs> you just, you're gambling. And that, you know, there's a certain amount of gamble in everything in life, but you can reduce the odds by uh, being conscious and energizing that reality. 
what values will serve your dream or your legacy or your process in creating your dreams or uh, feeding yourself while you're in the process of doing all this. Values can come in very, very uh, heavily polarized sets. You know, you've got for example, the the values of a, a George Bush Jr. or Sr. versus the values of a Dalai Lama. That's about as radically opposed as you can get. Probably the only more polarity than that would be Ronald Reagan versus the Dalai Lama. But the Bush uh, administration, uh, you know, was as bad as the uh, Reagan administration, and and we haven't had much better since then. Uh, Bill Gates. He's a very wealthy man, but his values are certainly not congruent with mine. I could go on a long rift about that, but uh, you start looking into some of these people that masquerade around like they're doing the world a big favor, but it turns out to be just more ploys to make billions and not really caring about people at all. I was very shocked to find out that Bill Gates, who's one of the chief forces behind mandatory vaccination did not vaccinate his own children. Well, how's that for a conflict in values? Uh, This is the kind of values conflict that ties your energy up and ultimately leads to challenges in your life. And I'm sure uh, money does not stop you from the challenges of a values conflict, I can assure you. I have a beautiful sculpture of the Dalai Lama that my mother did, and it's stunning to buy that sculpture from her. It would cost about 40 grand, so you can imagine it's beautiful. It looks like Dalai Lama's sitting right there on my shelf, and I connect my heart and soul to him every day and give him thanks and ask for guidance because, to me, he exemplifies the kind of man I choose to become a little more of each day, more empathetic, more compassionate, more loving. And for an ex-paratrooper, those are big goals, but I work on them. That's why I'm here sharing with you right now. So what values will your legacy serve and will serve your legacy? In other words, serve yourself every day so you can be that person. What working conditions do you want to be in? Do you want to be in a controlled environment, like working in a laboratory, a natural environment such as nature? Do you want to be indoors or outdoors? Do you want to be physically active? Do you want to do something outside like gardening or farming or working in the forest or the jungle? I remember one of my students came to HLC3, I think it was, years ago in Australia, and he had gone and joined a group of people in the jungle that were protecting wild animals and animals that had been poached and left to die, and they were rehabilitating them. And it was quite a profound experience for him. He was having a bit of a hard time adapting to the buzz and the kind of the uh, energy of being uh, out of the jungle. And so we had to do some grounding work with him. But there's an example of somebody who chose the environment where he wanted to share his love. Uh, Do you want to be someone doing outdoor coaching and teaching? Or would you like to be indoor like a life coach typically is or a... Um, you know, someone who directs uh, personal relationships or uh, someone that does medical coaching or things like that. Uh, Indoor environments are often technical environments, writing, sales, computer work. Uh, Do you want to be on the clock? Do you want to be fast or slow paced? Um, So do you want to be alone? 
versus being with others. I personally like to work alone. Uh, my wife, Penny, manages my business up here, uh, where I, my office is separate from the institute because I found I couldn't get any work done with the constant interruptions from people. So it took me a long time to figure out I had to be on my own to do my best work. And I'm naturally a loner. I spend so much of my time in the public teaching and traveling and you know, filming and now podcasting that I really need to be alone as often as I can when I work so that I can stay focused. And the only time people are here is when they're coming for uh, personal coaching from me or physical evaluations due to injuries or illnesses. And they usually stay uh, two to five days. Sometimes I've had people up here for three, four weeks at a time. I coached a professional baseball player in his off season this year for three months and he got an apartment nearby and came to see me uh, throughout the week. I rehabbed uh, Ma- Natalia Mamadova, uh, the top, one of the top uh, volleyball players in the world. She came here for three weeks with Bora Simarina, her coach. So occasionally I have people for longer stays, but that's part of my work. And then I go home at night and spend time with my beautiful wife, Angie, and Mana, and Penny comes home, and we all have a lovely, lovely experience together, just sharing love with each other and food and enjoying some evening entertainment or, or rattling or drumming or singing or reading stories or something like that. But we, we you know, my point is you, you have to get clear what you need as an environment to do the work you need to do. Some of us do that better with people. Some of us do it better alone. And if you don't get clear on that, you'll probably get clear when you're in pain, which then it's harder to make the change. A big one that people don't often think about till it's too late is a lot of people want lots of money. I'm forever getting young students coming to me going, I want to be a millionaire. And I say, good. How much responsibility do you want? As a general rule, the more money you make, the more responsibility comes with it. So, you know, when it comes to choosing your vocation or your dream or choosing the job that you want to do right now because it's the closest you can get to realizing your vocation, your career, or your legacy, then you need to ask, how much responsibility do I want? How much responsibility for people do I want? How much responsibility for my actions or the actions of others do I want? Um, Do I want to be in charge of making sure certain results happen? Um, How much responsibility do I want to have for other people's expectations? In other words, do I want, if I'm the, the, uh, president of an organization, there's going to be a lot of expectations from directors of the board. Uh, and, and with responsibility, there's usually uh, a correlation to how much stress you're going to go through. So, you know, there's an old saying, there's nothing free in life. So um, remember, people that won the lotto weren't ready for the responsibility that came with that money and they ended up being broke within a year and wishing they'd never won the money because it destroyed their lives because they hadn't learned to manage that much energy and weren't ready for all the stress from people. And those that have a lot of money are quite stressed frequently trying to protect it and keep it growing. So 
I can tell you being rich does not free you from stress or responsibility as a lot of people that don't have that much money think. So next, and number 10 is how much income do you want? How much money do you need to live the lifestyle you want? How secure is secure enough for you? I know people that have many, many, many millions, even billions in the bank, but they're still insecure about it. Uh, But then again, I know people like my wife, Penny, can walk around with five bucks in her pocket and not even think about it. I like to have at least $300 on me at all times, partly because I grew up in a family that didn't have money, and I saw a lot of fighting over money, and I like to have enough money to, you know, if my car gets stuck on the side of the road or uh, I need a new pair of shoes or, God forbid, my suitcase gets lost by an airline – and they give you your, your grand $35 to replace your wardrobe when you're like me going to give a lecture. And that's happened several times. So I, I feel I need at least 300 bucks in my pocket. And I like to have enough money in the bank to cover me for a good two or three months of expenses at minimum so that I know if something happens or I just get to the point where I really need to take a break for a month, I can. So how secure is secure enough for you? Be realistic. How do you want to be paid? You want to be paid by the job per week, per package. For someone like I sell packages of coaching, Angie sells packages of coaching. Do you want to be paid by the quarter? Do you want to be paid annually? What benefits do you desire? Do you want health care? How much vacation time do you want? How much... uh, Benefits do you want in education? When I worked for a large physical therapy clinic, once they realized how much business I could refer and was referring, I knew I had leverage. So when it came time for my annual job appraisal, I ended up getting a $20,000 pay raise per year and I asked for a $5,000 education bonus and I got it. So I went from being on staff for 60000 a year to basically making eighty-five because I got clear what I wanted. I investigated what I was generating for the business, both by my own therapy and referrals. And I proved to them mathematically that I was generating three times the amount of income that they would be paying me at 85000 a year at minimum. So this is the kinds of things you've got to get clear on. So there's your 10 key things. Now, what I encourage students to do in PPS Success Mastery Lesson 1 is to make a mind map of each of these 10 components and go through, as I've just outlined, and list them. Now, if you happen to join PPS Success Mastery Coaching uh, and buy any lesson, you have access to me and my bi-weekly coaching calls where you can ask me any question you need to support you in the lessons or in your life. And you have access to over 500 hours of coaching calls where I've addressed a myriad of issues from sex to God to spiritual astral travel to you name it. So once you make your mind map, if there's any of these 10 components that you don't know the answers to, then leave a space for it. Like draw a circle, for example, responsibility, and then just leave it open and then connect your heart to great spirit and say, I need help getting clear on this. Now you have sent the question out to the universe and the universe can respond to you, but then you have to stay open to the signs in the environment. So if all of a sudden you you get a new job as a middle level manager and you find yourself two months later just 
racking your brain and feeling stressed because everybody's constantly wanting something and the higher level management keeps coming to have you solve everybody else's blunders and you just say, wow, I just do not like being connected to this many people. It's not the kind of responsibility I want. Then then the universe is giving you the answer to your question. So you, it's not like you're going to get a hand-delivered mail. Uh, and the universe sent you this letter. It means pay attention to the signs that are always around you. And shaman learn to read the signs in the environment. And Angie and I taught a course at the Institute on that, uh, oh, I don't know, several months ago now, maybe a year ago, but people were fascinated by it. So create a mind map, list the things you know for sure, leave spaces for the answers to the questions you need, and then thank Great Spirit for guiding you each day and be open and spend enough time being quiet within yourself to listen to the answers that come from your soul, which is where I get most of my guidance. Now, if you find that your dream or legacy leads you into a place where you need training or uh, may not initially be able to generate enough income to uh, support yourself and meet your needs, you can begin working part-time on your chosen mission. So, for example, you might say, well, I think I might really like to be a baker and even own my own bakery one day, but I don't have the money or the skill to do that. So you might, maybe you have a job that pays you well enough right now that you don't want to quit your job, but you might want to see if you can become a baker's assistant and just get yourself in the environment and around get around a master baker and devote some time to being in the environment so you can start getting a strong palpable sense of whether or not that you still maintain that love after a couple of months working in a bakery. Seek an internship for training is another option. You can acquire a position in a company that offers what your mission entails and get paid to learn to have your vocation, career, dream, or legacy. This is called aligning your interests. So you go where people are doing what you'd like to do, and maybe your dream is to be an inventor and get paid for it. So you go to a company that basically fabricates and invents things, and you might start cleaning the floors. Then you might get trained as a, you know, maybe you get trained as a machinist or uh, some kind of a technician. Like Like I shared earlier, I went to electronics school to repair weapon systems on Cobra helicopters, And though I didn't end up in that profession, I learned a lot about electronics and got the confidence that I could learn almost anything. Because believe me, uh, almost a year in electronics school, I had to do eight weeks of training in math school just to get my math skills up to where I could begin doing the work with all the algebra and mathematic formulations to determine how to design and modulate electrical circuits. But those things really helped me. So I joined the United States Army, and I got trained, and ultimately, because I joined the Army and got around a large organization that had a lot of possibilities, I ended up fighting on the boxing team and then becoming the trainer, and that calling, which was my urge to create financial safety and security for myself and my family, because I had my heart open and was sensitive to when I felt good and felt like love was coming back to me and I was having a sense of value, I ended up 
not using my military training, but using the training that I had from the lessons I'd learned as an athlete and being raised by a mother that's a yogi and a father that's a farmer and both of them being quite holistic. And that is exactly what I ended up using to build my career as a trainer and then later a therapist and then progressively a life coach. You can buy into an existing business that is synergistic with your mission and partner up with somebody. You can develop a business plan and simply go for it. You know, so that that's part of the hero's journey. If you're confident enough in what you want to do and you have enough experience that you know starting your own business isn't going to be an experiment and whether you like something or not, then it might be time to develop a business plan and you know, find people that will invest in it or uh, get a bank to lend you the money um, or find an entrepreneur that believes in what you're doing. I would estimate that only about 2% of the population actually finds their legacy, which unfortunately means about 98% of the people in the world don't find out what their legacy is. Now, when you do figure it out, you have to remember that Bugs always fly to the light. People that are happy, people that are aligned in their values and interests, people who have energy and passion and commitment are very attractive to people that are like that, but also very attractive to other people because consciously or unconsciously always want something that you've got. So it takes a lot of discipline. The more successful you are, the more people gravitate toward you for better or worse. And I can tell you that even with my little level of success, That's been one of the biggest challenges in my life is dealing with all the people that have little games going on and think that I'm rich or that I'm going to do this for them because they gave me a gift or whatever. And so it's been a hard lesson for me in that way. And I've learned how to protect myself and keep a fence up so that the bugs have to get through the electric fence. But we all have to learn these lessons. And PPS Success Mastery Lesson 2, which is all about mental self-management, teaches you a lot about how to manage yourself uh, effectively so you can navigate the hero's journey. But some of the things that we have to be conscious of so we don't get pulled off our journey by naysayers and family members and people like that, sadly, our families are usually the biggest source of negative energy and resistance to our dreams, but that's part of our growth and development. That's that's sort of the that's part of the equipment in what I call spirit gym. Just like you go to the go to the gym and move resistance to get stronger, we have to move emotional resistance and mental resistance to get stronger at each level of our being. And all of those are spiritual growth. So we have to be conscious about which relationships we're in that aren't serving us. And we may have to sever or minimize those relationships. We have to be very conscious of not falling into addictions. Remember, an addiction is any repeated behavior that does not serve you. We have to be conscious of not getting involved in poorly thought out business deals. Um, We have to be careful about undirected social relationships or obligations, such as volunteering to be the president of some association. So your ego might feel good, but then you end up with hardly any time to breathe. We have to be careful about educational diversions and not staying in university forever and ever and ever. And That's why they call PhD piled higher and deeper. You've got 10 years of education, but you've never actually put your hands on somebody or been in the field. You've just got a head full of ideas, but you don't know if they really work or not. We have to be very careful about dogmatic religious beliefs and practices because they can be very self-limiting. 
Um, <laughs> you know, that's a good way to make God laugh, actually. Rumi says, no man can get to God until he becomes a heretic. A heretic is somebody that departs from the uh, fundamental teachings of the various doctrines, be it the Quran, the Bible, the Torah, whatever. But what he means is, if you think you can find God by reading pages, you're deceived. You have to go into life and into yourself and into your heart and into love to find God. And most of the things that people do to get deeper into that are things that the church calls a sin or frowns upon because ultimately the church is uh, basically its success is based on limiting your freedom and making you codependent. So uh, I'm warning you that uh, religion can either be very uh, supportive to your dream or it can be very antagonistic. And even if it is supportive, you may mature to the point as you learn to think critically and think for yourself that what once served you no longer serves you. And you may all of a sudden find yourself more attracted to Buddhism or Taoism or uh, the teachings of mystics or even quantum physics as your way of connecting to the greater whole. Lack of self-love is another common problem. Um, so we've talked about those issues fair, a fair bit. Um, then one I call depleting memory structure. So anything that stops you from thinking clearly, such as too much caffeine, too much alcohol, any drug that, that creates a, a, a lack of cognitive cap, uh, capability or, or capacity. Uh, remember, whenever your stress levels are too high, you get elevated cortisol levels, and one of the symptoms of elevated, chronically elevated cortisol levels is it knocks out your short-term memory. So you find yourself reading the same paragraph over and over again. You can't even remember what it was in there. You study like hell to pass a test. You go to sit down and take the test. You can't remember a damn thing. And that boils down to poor four-doctor management. So if you starve your legacy, you starve your soul. If you starve your soul, then you won't find your legacy or you won't be able to stick to it. So when you don't know what your legacy is, then there's things that we can do, like I've talked about, uh, but just remember the work you do and the way you do it is the difference between saying to the universe, I'm not sure what my legacy is, but my heart and mind are open to guidance, and I don't care what my legacy is, and I'll never have such and such. The way you do anything is the way you do everything, is what I'm saying. So if the best you can do is work washing dishes right now to cover the bills while you're exploring all your possibilities, then be a damn good dishwasher. I've never been fired from a job myself. I always prided myself on my workmanship. And I was always able to get jobs easily, no matter how high the unemployment rate was. I would go to people and say, hire me for two or three days if I'm not the best worker you ever met. Then you owe me nothing for the work I did for you. And when people heard that come out of my mouth, a lot of them said, I'll take you up on that. But inevitably what happened is after two or three days, they said, not only are you hired, but we will pay you because you did a great job. So I've never actually had to go without money, but I did offer and was willing to prove my ability to get a good job done and that I was worth hiring regardless of how deficient my resume may have been lacking a college degree or what have you. And that's what it means to enter the hero's journey and be a man or a woman, an adult, is go for it and don't 
whine and cry and poor me yourself to death. Remember, hate is not the opposite of love, indifference is. So the person who just simply doesn't care and expects the world to take care of them is indifferent. And that is a very, very painful place to be. And there you are foregoing the beauty of being human. You're foregoing the beauty of being alive. You're ignoring your opportunity to contribute to the world. And that is a life of moldy bread, progressively rotting. So analyze your current set of values. Look at what your values are and does the way you're living match the values that are going to be dream affirmative you for you? If not, stress is the most common response to living and working outside your value set. An example is, is I've had uh, three cases now of doctors or people that came through holistic lifestyle coach training, but were working for drug companies. And I've had several students that were making a lot of money in the stock market off of medical drugs. But by the time they got through HLC, Two, they realized they were in a crisis of values, and every one of them ended up uh, either pulling their money out of the drug market and investing in things that were dream affirmative or values affirmative for them or got out of the medical drug business and started their own holistic lifestyle coaching business or something that was uh, aligned with their heart and what they wanted to share with the world. Can you adjust your environment to match your value set? I certainly have. If I can do it, you do it. Um, Do you need a um, new work experience where you can live by your value set? In other words, if if you can't live by your values where you're at, then you've got to be brave enough to leave. I remember one time I was working for Napa Auto Auto Parts as a machinist doing engine rebuilds and and, uh, machining flywheels and cylinder heads and crankshafts when I was young in Florida for a period of time. And though I really enjoyed my work, the boss that owned Napa Auto Parts was one hell of a redneck control freak, um, A-S-S-H-O-L-E, to be honest with you. And I was very into high-performance cars and building my own engines, as I've alluded to earlier. And I used to read Hot Rod Magazine and things like that. Uh, to read the articles and get ideas. Well, one day he said to me, you can't read those magazines here. Well, I was on my lunch hour. I said, I'm on my lunch hour. I can read whatever I want. When I'm on lunch, I'm not working for you. I can be anywhere I want to be and do what I want to be. That's just how it works in life. I'm a young guy. He says, nope, not if you're going to work for me. You're not allowed to read anything like that. And then he started telling me what I could read. And he was a hardcore Christian type too. And that didn't sit well with me because I don't like anybody telling me what God wants or that I'm going to burn in hell. And though I had a good job there and I really enjoyed my work, I would not let someone control me. So I quit. And I went and got another job somewhere else. So it's up to you to decide when you're working against your values or people are trying to make you do it. And it might be scary to quit and you might have to scramble to make ends meet, but at least you're scrambling to create freedom instead of becoming a prostitute. So these are very important concepts. And, you know, once you know what your values are, then you can start looking for companies to work with or people to work with that share those values. And you're going to be much safer 
and you can find organizations or corporations. For example, if your values, uh, a, a good example, uh, one of my HLC students started a meat packing plant to uh, make free-range organic meats more available to people. But he was in a completely different line of work before. But he realized through his HLC training that he wanted to use his business skills to help people. Another one of my students in England um, came up with a recipe for um, non-dairy healthy ice cream. And now his ice cream is distributed all over all over the UK and Europe and maybe even in the United States now. So they found people to work with that had uh, an alignment of their values and were able to live their dream. So matching your values with the people that you're working with minimizes the risk of you having to leave because somebody won't let you read what you want to read on, on your lunch hour as a metaphor. So now that you've learned all this, remember most people dread job interviews, but if you're practicing what I'm teaching you here, you can get to have even more fun because you're ultimately going to interview the company or the potential employer. They think they're interviewing you. But once you know who you are and what you love and what you're willing to say yes to or you need to say no to, you're actually doing as much of an interview on them as they are on you. And even if they say, yes, you can have the job, if your inner voice says this isn't the place for you, then don't be a prostitute. Trust the universe to support you. Or if you're in dire straits, take whatever job you can get to hold you over, but keep working with spirit and keep uh, your eyes on the newspapers and uh, various uh, headhunters that will look for jobs for you, whatever you've got to do. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. It's a long one. I've shared a lot with you here. We're two hours and... 40-something minutes in, but I really felt these were very important things because our physical, emotional, and mental and spiritual evolution generally manifests itself as a gift to the world through our career, not only through our relationships with friends and family, but our the way we earn money is what we spend usually a third of our life or more doing. And it has a huge impact on the world. If you're contributing to the manufacture of, uh, you know, nuclear weapons uh, and things like that, well, you know, you better be clear about your value set. Because if you die in a nuclear war, when you see that flash, you might have been the one that made the bomb. So, um, I hope you've enjoyed learning how to evolve through your career. The world is a living mirror. The persons, places, and things, and circumstances of our lives mirror our dominant thoughts. The gift is learning that we are either being given growth opportunities or celebrating the joy of living from our hearts and sharing our love with the world, or we're not. So thank you for joining me for the Evolve 2019 series. I'm excited about our big special event and the uh, offering we have coming for you. Um, I'd love to share more ways you can learn, grow, and support yourself through the many programs I offer through the Czech Institute and PPS Success Mastery Training. And I want to close by thanking the Czech Institute staff, the Czech Institute instructors, our podcast team, uh, my wife Penny, my wife Angie, my children Paul Jr., Mana, and our little baby who we think we're going to call Zoe at this point. 
And uh, for all the people who share their love with me and and all the beautiful letters I get, and uh, for all my students and for all the customers and followers of the Czech Institute, uh, I live and love for you and thank you for the love you share with me. And thank you to Gavin and Gabby and to the podcast team uh, for the great job you're doing. I look forward to sharing more with you soon. I've got many great interviews on the way to you. In Living 4D with Paul Check. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the final Evolve session of Living 4D with Paul Check. If you'd like to ask Paul about how you can implement the tips and techniques you learned here, join him on Instagram Live on Saturday, April 27th at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Paul will be live from Paleo FX in Austin, Texas. You can follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check to get notifications when he goes live. For more information on Evolve with the Czech Institute, visit checkinstitute.com forward slash evolve 2019. You'll learn all about a powerful one-day event on May 3rd that will empower you to fuel your own personal and professional evolution. To listen to more episodes of Living 4D with Paul Check, go to checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast.